everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. And this week we are going to be covering the top five fish out of water comedies of the 1980s. Frank, this month we have, I think, some pretty good variety right now. We have yeah, comedies this week. Uh, next week we'll be doing a third man series with returning guest Jason Heaster, who will be talking about the best films of Bill Murray. And we have crime films the following week. Top five, 70s crime films. 70s crime films. Top five crime movies of the 70s. And then we're going to end the month going back into our dive into 80s B-horror movies, which we'll be doing the year 1982. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, this week, I wanted to start out is this list of the top five movies seems to have been in somewhat in flux over the past month. Several since times, we, sure. <clears throat> since I, the, the, the categories first broached. So... <clears throat> Why the hard decisions, like, when it came to this list? <laughs> well, okay. So, one of the reasons is that there's a couple movies that will be on other lists at some point that we couldn't really use. Um, sure. So, that made it difficult because they would have been obvious choices for me. Mm-hmm. And then, I'm not a huge fan of comedy, I guess. Like, I like it, but when I look at it, it's just going to sound like, oh, all right, fine, like. It can be these five. Um, and I like like all five of the movies on this list, but it was just, it was difficult. And then we also, I picked a movie that you watched before me and then told me that there was no way that it was any good, so we couldn't have that. Even though that was like one my... So, so that movie was One Crazy Summer. Right, the, that was my sentimental favorite. The Savage Deep Holland yeah. directed film with John Cusack and Demi Moore mm-hmm. and Bobcat Goldthwait. What's the matter, you? Um, yes, that was a very embarrassing to watch that movie when I loved that movie as a kid. Right. I loved it as a kid. Too. I had it taped off of HBO. It was on the same VHS that I also taped when was uh, when of the willows. Mm. Um, That's a on, pairing on the, on the same VHS tape. And I used to watch it when I was a kid over and over. See, I feel like and I liked one it. crazy summer into my twenties though. I, I think I've seen this movie since I've been an adult and enjoyed it. Really? I think so. Hmm. I mean, it's a different time, like yeah. late 90s, but... Uh, it settled in after a while, One Crazy Summer did, but the first half hour is like a culture shock of just trying to be absurdist, having this absurdist humor that just does not land in the modern day at all. Like That's interesting. See, now I so I didn't watch it because right. you were so vehemently like opposed to this movie being any good at all yeah it's not it's not and now i like i really want to watch it again but i don't know if i got the time so i don't know i might have to make time yeah we got a lot of movies to watch in the next month or so and i'm trying to get through true detective season three i mean there's there's things that you know are like i guess obvious choices maybe um, so uh, let me read a couple because I, I we, we had an initial list over text you know that was kind of yeah. like you know um, that I so planning. I want to get like some quick opinions from you on some of these okay so uh, back to school the Rodney Dangerfield field film from like 86 or so see I really like back to school but I that was a movie where I had thought about it and I was like there's no way that movie can hold up like today like there's no way that Rodney Dangerfield's comedy is funny to me as a 42-year-old man as it was when I was, like, a 12-year-old kid. You don't think it would be funnier, maybe? I don't know. Hmm. I was I didn't want to choose it for that okay. reason. Yeah. That was another movie I really liked as a kid. A yeah, lot me too. Back to School. I like Back to School. <laughs> yeah. Um, Splash. I don't like Splash. Why don't you like Splash? I don't know. I just don't think it's a very good movie. 
When was the last time you saw Splash? Jesus. I don't know. 25 years ago, maybe? I think... Maybe was, longer than I that. I think I, the last time I saw it was in the 80s, probably. Yeah. I wasn't a big fan of it either. I don't know. I just... Growing just up, yeah. Whatever. Do you like Daryl Hannah? Sure. Daryl Hannah's fine. Hmm. I like, um... What's it called? Blade Runner. Daryl Hannah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I have anything against Daryl Hannah. I don't think Daryl Hannah is as impressive as people, like, kind of, like... Even whatever her station is as an actress, I think it's lower than what people think it is. I think she was one of those weird sex symbols, though, of the 80s that, like, our parents' generation, like, the men found really attractive for some reason. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, she's an attractive woman. Sure, I'm not sure, like, right, where that yeah. comes from. But there's, like, there's a few people like that. Like, um, like Gina Davis is another one that yeah. had this weird, like, allure I know to, like, my father... Yeah. And other, like, adults that I knew where they really thought Gina Davis was super attractive. And I, again, she's an attractive woman, but I don't... Yeah. And Julia Roberts is another one. I mean, there's just, like, there's a number of people that, like, in hindsight, you think, like, her? But, I don't yeah. know. I mean, like, all fine actresses. I think Daryl Hannah's a good actress. She's I fine. think Gina she's Davis fine. is a good actress. Sure. And yeah, yeah. Julia Roberts is obviously, like, a good actress, but... Yeah. Yeah. Just wondering. Trading Places. Yeah, I know. Whatever. I, 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 it felt like it would be too crass, I guess. I think I joked to... Who, who is it that likes Trading Places? Is that Aiden? Yeah, I think so. I think it was him I made a joke to maybe one time after I'd been drinking that the best thing of... The best part of Trading Places was the cameo that Don Amici and the other guy make in um, Coming to America. Right. <laughs> um, I don't even know why... I, it's not that I dislike Trading Places. It's like I, I don't I, know. I haven't seen it in so long, yeah. but I just... I feel like... I feel like it would come off like One Crazy Summer came off to you mm. in some... So I watched um, 48 Hours okay, because right, that was right, something that one, I yeah. considered mm-hmm. for the list and found it to be really grating in its comedy and not funny like at all. Like things that I think was were supposed to be funny just come off as really abusive and mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. What, what was your overall thoughts, though, on 48 Hours? Since My you what? Your overall thoughts on 48 Hours, like, as just a film. Like, I think it's one of Eddie Murphy's worst performances mm-hmm. of the 80s, when I think that Eddie Murphy has some really seminal performances yeah. during that decade. I think that it paints police officers in an incredibly weird and bad light, where it's almost like... They're all villains or incompetent buffoons in some way, which is odd to me for that time period, especially because they really are supposed to be the heroes of the movie. Right. Um, I think the best thing about it is the villain, the main, like, the crazy, like, killer guy. But even he's, like, not that great. I don't know. It's just, it's, um, it's misogynistic. It's homophobic. It's kind of racist. It's, uh... A very bad portrayal of, like, black people in society and their role in society and how people perceive them. And maybe that's, like, true how they do perceive them, but it definitely has Eddie Murphy live up to a lot of stereotypes, which I find to be really uncomfortable. It's really poorly paced, and I don't know. I just I just didn't enjoy it. It made me feel, like, like oily to watch it. Like, I didn't feel good when it was over. 
Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom's fine, but it's, I don't know. I know that you really like that movie, but it's just... That was another childhood nostalgia type thing. <clears throat> yeah. See, all my all my nostalgia, I think, is, like, wrapped up in, like, movies like this, where all your nostalgia, like, is, like, wrapped up in, like, horror. Yeah. Horror and movie, like, fantasy. Yeah. And sci-fi. Yeah. For the right. most part. That damn list, yeah. All right. Uh, right. <clears throat> sword and sorcery. It's weird, though, because my, my nostalgia was about, like, escapism. Like, I always, like... Mm-hmm. Like, literal escapism in terms of going to another planet or, like, an imaginary world or even, like, from the horror aspect, you know, something that logically could never happen. Whereas, like, a lot of your nostalgia is movies that in some ways could be grounded in a sense of reality. Right. And I don't think I was necessarily sheltered, but I didn't go at very young ages, like, in my... Until I was, like, probably in my teens I didn't go out of the house that much so I think in some ways like yeah I was more what's going on in the outside world rather than escaping from the outside world yeah. into something like sci-fi or fantasy or I horror. mean even, even from a young kid like I was reading comics when I was you know two or three years old and I always watched like the sword and sorcery movies and we had living in Baltimore you know as a kid we had the benefit of all the Saturday matinee TV shows that would be on so you had the the Western, and then the Kung Fu, and there was always, like, the horror sci-fi. Um, and I watched, like, probably, like, four or five movies a week, even at that young of an age. And I think that, you know, playing with toys and my own, like, my love of, like, Star Wars and stuff for me, and E.T., like, that escapism was always very, like, appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And I was an only child for the first eight years of my life, and... Then we moved up to Cecil County and I lived, like, we kind of were isolated, so I didn't really have a lot of, like, I couldn't go out and play. So a lot of, like, my play was based on, you know, like, adapting movies to my own, right. whatever, like, internal mythology or whatever you want to call it. So, I don't know. Fantasy and horror and sci-fi really appealed to me in that sense. And westerns, too. Like, I like the feeling of, like, the unexplored country or whatever and, you know, man versus... Like man in the wilderness, and Mister Mom doesn't really need any of those categories. So I don't know. I don't know. I like. I love Remo Williams. I know how much you like that movie and Mm. Buckaroo Banzai as well. Right. Right. I was also a big Michael Keaton fan during that time of my life. Yeah. Like anything with Michael Keaton and I love. I I remember Mister Mom being like good. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen Mister Mom but once in my life, and seriously, it's probably been like twenty eight years since I've seen it. Maybe longer. I'm not trying to make you. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just asking what you thought of the movie and why I didn't make the list. Right, because I just don't remember okay. well enough. Overboard. Right, we're not going to talk about Overboard. I, I don't like Overboard. I don't, like, all, all, all you MFers like Overboard, and I just don't get it. Like, that's, and that's the thing, like, everybody loved, like, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Uh-huh. And, like, I just, like, I don't, I don't know. I like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, but I don't like him in Overboard, and I don't want to watch Overboard ever again. I've seen Overboard maybe three times in my life, too, and I just, I hate it. I don't know why. Hmm. Okay. And I almost watched it again for you for yeah, this list, right. and I couldn't bring myself to do it. Okay. It was there in my queue. Three ninety nine. I'm just asking your opinion on the movie and why it's not on the list. It's, it's not a... I, yes, I, I, don't I love Overboard. Yes. Like, I don't even great. remember much about it, except that I hate everyone in it when I watch it. Okay. I hate the premise, I think. Yeah. I don't like the whole, like, rich woman... Being like, like her her crime. Well, no, is, or do you have a problem with the idea that it's like 
she's amnesiac, who he convinces is his wife in this like trashy blue collar setting. As revenge, as revenge for her being. Do you have a problem with that plot for in her 2019? Being a jerk. Right. I just, I, I think I had a problem with it in like 1992. I don't know. It's just, it, I just, I, I don't like it. I don't like it. Edward Herman's in it. He's really good. Edward Herman's good in everything. I'll just watch Lost Boys. <laughs> Yeah, we should talk about Lost Boys at some point. It will it'll come up. <clears throat> Although it won't be on the B-movie list because I don't consider it a B-movie. Right. It'll, it'll be on a different list. Yeah, it's really like an A-list yeah. Hollywood movie. Yeah. Vampires. Something like that. Um, okay. So, last thing I have for you before we get started on this list is uh, you started talking about it a little bit about not liking comedies or being like... like What's the what's the re, what's the what's the reluctance like? What is what's the thing that's holding you back when you say that you just aren't a big fan of comedies? I just don't find there are some comedies that I love mm-hmm. that I think are really good and really funny and really hold up, but for the most part, I find comedies to be really trite, and I don't really find that they make me laugh. Mm-hmm. It's like one of my favorite comedies of all time is Napoleon Dynamite. Okay. Because it's so absurd. <clears throat> and it makes you laugh because it does things that you absolutely... Like, the first time you see it, it's almost like like a nightmare, kind of. Like, nothing makes sense, and it's just these weird... But it makes sense from, like, its own narrative standpoint, but its narrative is so fractured. And I think that makes me laugh. And, uh, you know, being surprised and something actually catching me off guard, whereas... Will Ferrell talking in a funny voice or something? Like, that's just not that funny to me. Okay. Although, you know, like, the one Will Ferrell movie that I really love, The Other Guys, mm-hmm. I like so much because it has these elements. Like, we talked about um, My Best Friend's Wedding a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when you can completely catch me off guard in what's happening in the comedy, then it's funny. But when it's somebody, like, falling down in a pan falling on their head... You know, or somebody, like, pissing their pants. Like, okay. Like, that's that's, that's probably real tough to think of that gag, I guess. I don't know. Like, I just... It doesn't make me laugh. And I like to laugh. Like, and I make a lot of jokes. And we laugh a lot. Like, our group of friends. Like, we make a lot of jokes. And things are funny. And I like to laugh. But it's it's, it's tough, I think. Okay. Um, Maybe it's because I'm just a prick. Well, given that, my question was going to be, why are you such an elitist? Right. I don't know. I don't feel like I am. (laughs) But only in sense of comedies. Because you really just generalized every other comedy other than the ones you like is people pissing their pants or getting in the head with pants. That's really what you just did. <clears throat> and isn't that what happens? Um, I don't know, is it? I don't know. Like, it feels like Dumb and Dumber? It feels like people are always like like peeing or pooping themselves or okay. some okay. kind of bodily function is going to embarrass somebody and you're supposed to laugh at that. Alright, so we're not going to have any of that in these lists then. I don't remember. Okay. I don't think there's any. Yeah, I don't think there's any any weird bodily function. Okay, Uncle Buck maybe comes nah, the closest. I don't, yeah, I don't, even then I don't yeah. think there's any of that. So, right, okay, so know, so let's okay. let's let let's start. So the first movie. Yeah, yeah is right, Uncle right. Buck. So the first movie on the list is, at number five is 1989's Uncle Buck, written and directed by John Hughes, starring John Candy, Amy Madigan, Macaulay Culkin before his Home Alone fame. It has a 61% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 76% from audiences. 
Go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it, Frank. So, Buck, played by John Candy, is an unemployed grifter who lives in Chicago with his long-suffering girlfriend who wants nothing more than for him to settle down and get married, which he does not want. Um, he makes his living by betting on rigged horse races that he does apparently once a year and earns enough money to live on for the entire rest of the year so he can just be unemployed. Um, his brother is a successful something that lives in the Chicago sub- suburbs uh, with his wife, who's, you know, they're like both divorcees and have gotten married again. And they have children, um, one of which is the, his daughter that does not appreciate the mother. So the mother's father has a heart attack and they have to leave to go back to Indianapolis. And the only person they can get to watch their kids is Buck. Um, Buck is supposed to start working at his girlfriend's tire shop and uses that as a perfect excuse to get out of going to work to go and watch these kids. Um, immediately develops like a good relationship with the two youngest kids, Macaulay Culkin, and I don't know who plays the young girl, um, Maisel or Maisie or whatever. Um, has a very antagonistic relationship with Tia, who's the teenage daughter of his brother, um, who apparently he had like a better relationship with when she was really young and he saw her more, but you sort of get the impression that since the guy got remarried, the mother, the new wife isn't super approving of Buck and Buck isn't like really invited around all that much. Um, so he has to spend a week there taking care of him. Um, a lot of misadventures happen. Uh, he ends up bonding with all of them and kind of proving his worth as somebody that could be a good dad. And it ends up, you know, happy in the end. A lot of misadventures. Um, it's not, it's not a great movie by a lot of standards, but it's really interesting that like, I mean, John Candy is the prototypical, like, fat guy of the 1980s and sort of, like, paved the way for Chris Farley to be that in the 90s. And in a lot of John Candy's movies, it's played the fact that he's big and that he's kind of bumbling or he's kind of gross. And it's interesting that this movie never really plays on the fact that he's he's fat. He's portrayed as charming and intelligent and well-spoken in his, like, really gruff, kind of, like, homey way. Like, he has a lot of wisdom. Um, he's wooed by, uh, whatever, the sister from Roseanne. Lori Metcalf. Yeah, Lori Metcalf. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where it almost, like, destroys his relationship with his girlfriend. Both of whom are, you know, moderately attractive, like, middle-aged women mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, there's some really good interactions between him and the kids that are really kind of almost charming in their own weird way. Um, And I think it's got a pretty, like, decent message of, you know, learning to become, like, an adult and realizing that maybe, like, having children and being in a family is the thing that you might want. But still leaves it at the end with this question of, is Buck really, like, changed and is he really going to, you know, adapt to this new environment? Um, I think Buck has some really good lines. John Candy is... I don't know if underrated is the right word, but I think that always an incredibly solid performance in every movie that he's in, even though he's kind of typecast a lot of times, just very natural delivery of lines. He's got a very like easy presence on screen, um, very graceful for like a large guy and sells gags really well without it being like overly, 
you know, again, it's not just like burp, fart, fall down, which to me is like what a what a fat person is in like a comedy. Like it's always more nuanced than that. Not always, but at least in this movie. And nuanced is maybe not the right term for this movie. But there's a lot of like verbal things that he does when he's talking to other people that are really funny. And, you know, the sight gag of his ridiculous like marquee or whatever, like 15 year old car that's like belching fumes and making all this noise and embarrassing everyone. And him in his, like, hunter's cap as he's driving around looking like a serial killer. Um, to the point where he actually has, like, kind of like a murder kit in his trunk with, like, duct tape and a drill. And kidnaps, you know, Tia, the older sister's boyfriend at one point to, like, win her affection, kind of. Um, and again, like, not, like, the best movie. Definitely not the best John Hughes movie. But, you know, endearing and fun sort of yeah, I, I think Candy has a weird place where he's kind of revered because he died so young, but also, you're right. I think is to some degree underrated. <clears throat> There's a number of John Candy or yeah, John Candy movies in the '80s that I loved, like uh, Armed and Dangerous. Right, that's a good movie. Uh, I I love that movie. Uh, him and Eugene Levy, and which I think they co-wrote together, maybe and. There's that, Who's Harry Crumb, yeah. which it seems like I only know two other people that even know who, what who Harry, Who's Harry Crumb is. Um, yeah, I remember that. But another that another movie, movie where it's it's not a, it's not about him being like the fat guy, really. It's about him being... It, he was actually a master of disguise, right. despite the fact that he's large. Yeah. You know, he was still this like master like, private detective who was also... You know, stealthy and all these other things, yeah. which I guess that's probably part of the joke is he's so stealthy, even though he's a bigger guy. <clears throat> but uh, I, I thought this was one of his. Even then, it relies on a lot of physical humor. Those movies, and I thought this was one of the ones that he actually got to act right some in it. Yeah, the the most. I mean, there's some sight gags in this movie, like him like microwaving the laundry to dry it because he doesn't know how to use the washing machine. Sure. Um, but it doesn't rely on his presence at all, necessarily. Right, it really is just like a sight gag yeah. <laughs> where where Laurie Metcalf thinks that he's like having sex with the washing machine. Oh, yeah, or something, that is good, yeah. Something in the washing machine because he's trying to shove the laundry in, yeah. which is pretty funny. Um, and cussing at it so it sounds... Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a good bit, like, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's just... It, 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 comedy in the 80s is very difficult to watch in the late... 2010s or whatever you want to call the era we're in because a lot of it relies on homosexual slurs racial slurs you know which we're certainly going to see some of that in some of these right and it happens um but this movie john hughes definitely has a feel for like the family and the idea of the person that doesn't belong, like, finding their place, kind of. And definitely, you know, Buck is uncultured in a lot of ways, or, like, willfully uncultured, maybe, and doesn't really understand the trappings of, like, suburban life. And this is one, you know... I mean, everybody, every family in the 1980s lived in, like, a $400,000 house in, like, some ridiculous suburb with, like, manicured lawns and 10 bedrooms. And, I mean, just... You know, and then Buck lives in, like, a one-bedroom apartment in some, like, slum in Chicago. But comes and, like, you know, like, teaches the kids something and shows them, like, affection. And I think actually kind of grows 
It was funny because I honestly had forgotten that Macaulay Culkin was in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, in my brain, like before, honestly, before we started this podcast, because now I've seen him in a ton of stuff, um, I forgot that Macaulay Culkin existed before um, Home Alone. Mm-hmm. But it's odd, like, how many movies Macaulay Culkin is in. And movies that I really enjoy. And then I see him now and I'm like, oh, shit, that's Macaulay Culkin. And I never... It was just weird, like, that he was... Because I remember the son in this movie. Like, I remember him... And I remember him being, like, Jonathan Taylor Thomas or something. <laughs> like, I, that's who I, I guess I thought it was, but not yeah. Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Um, but he's pretty good in it. You know, he's got yeah. that... Yeah, he's... He was, he was a really talented, like, kid actor even yeah. before Home Alone. Right. Um, the young daughter, Maisie or whatever, like, that actress yeah. is yeah. does a good job, too. Um, I think Tia, the actress who plays Tia, does a good job um, as being that, like wannabe punk or like madonna-esque you know yeah i thought that the culture of the the teen culture represented in the 80s felt odd it's felt like where he so uses so good in his other movies of differentiating the different types of cliques and cultures that were going on yeah this felt almost like this hod weird hodgepodge where it was just, they were just teens. Right. And all those different styles were mixed up a little bit. So I felt like he kind of just took like a shortcut with like the teen route in this movie to just show that they're all, you know, horny, you know, teens that listen to different types of music. And it's almost right. like, uh, which makes sense from if it's about Buck and it's Buck's perspective, that makes sense. And they all dress like, um, what's his name? Like uh, Judge Reinhold or whatever from. Not Judge Reinhold. From uh, Breakfast Club. What's his name? Judd Nelson. Yeah, Judd Nelson. Like, yeah. they all have, like, trench coats and gloves with the fingers cut out. And, right. Right. Yeah. Judge Reinhold. That, right. that, that, would, that would have been a good performance. It would, yeah. <laughs> I just rewrote Breakfast Club. So, Ebert gave this one and a half stars. Right. That makes sense. And his criticism is this. He says that Hughes is usually the master of the right note, the right line of dialogue, and this time there's an uncomfortable undercurrent in the material. But what's surprising is how many wrong notes are sounded by the story. Often it's a matter of tone. The rebellious teenager is too angry sometimes, too sharp to be sympathetic. A promiscuous neighbor, the Laurie Metcalf character, who comes over to make a play for Uncle Buck is such a character that she doesn't amuse, she repels. In one particularly uncomfortable scene, Uncle Buck confronts the grade school teacher and flips her a quarter in parentheses, to go downtown to have a rat and all the growth off her face. The scene is handled with such a mean spirit that any possible humorous effect is lost and we simply feel bad, simply feel had afterwards. We also feel uneasy most of the time while Uncle Buck attempts to deal with the 15-year-old's relationship with her boyfriend, which you mentioned about, like, with this basically tortured kid in the back. You know, Um, so let's talk about the thing where he confronts the the teacher. mm Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's a wrong note. I think it's just that it like Buck is like coming to love these kids and doesn't know how to be protective. Like he doesn't know the right way to address. So to him, it's just to attack them. You know that that's his way to defend somebody that he cares about and not understand that like this is a child and this is an elementary school teacher and it's probably not the right tact. Mm-hmm. But it's because he has no attack to take. Like he's so clueless as to how to behave like a real person that that's what he does, but it still is like loving in its own way. I can't believe I just defended like that scene in uncle buck. But I mean, I think that's the truth. I think that's what it's supposed to symbolize. Yeah. I mean, and they certainly don't paint the 
principal, I guess it is in that scene, in any kind of sympathetic light whatsoever. No, You're supposed to dislike her. Mean, mean-spirited and, yeah. like, I don't know, she, she harsh. Just, she just hides behind bureaucracy right. to be mean-spirited, which I think the idea is he recognizes that pretty quickly and is just much more blunt in how mean he is. Yeah. He also, I mean, he's doing something where there's no consequence. Right. Like... It doesn't matter how he acts because he gets to go away mm-hmm. at the end of the week and whatever happens, happens. Which maybe is like a big character flaw on Buck's part. But again, he also is like showing love and showing a protective instinct, like a paternal instinct, just in a really broken and weird way. How do you feel about the criticism that it's hard with Tia to be sympathetic towards her because she's so just miserable? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. she's really... I think the actress does a fine job of portraying that, but I think that... It's almost like she's, like, bipolar or something. Like, she's very... No, not bipolar. She's just very, um... Caustic about everything. You know, so the problem is that... You're supposed to understand that the reason she's so angry is because... Um... No, she's the daughter of the mother. No, she's not. I don't know. Whatever. Like, you're supposed to think that, like... I don't know what you're supposed to think, like yeah. why that relationship is strained, except you that she didn't really, want to leave Indianapolis to move to right. Chicago. That, that's the whole crux of the whole thing. Is yeah. The way that the movie portrays it is she didn't want to move. They made her move. Now she's become rebellious. But they moved because her father got a promotion. It wasn't because the right. mother. Right. And then she's even more upset that she's not allowed to go back to Indianapolis with them to visit the grandfather. Right. And it's already, this relationship's just deteriorated over time. And, yeah, she's, it also a, doesn't, she's just a brat. It I also mean, doesn't make any sense when at the end, after they come back, like, she, like, gives her a big hug. and Right. Like, there's no real reason for yeah. her to, like, have that change. And I, I mean, you can kind of see it with Buck because Buck was right and mm-hmm. was really just trying to protect her from this guy yeah. that was, like, kind of a predator. Yeah. But with the mother, like... I mean, why? Yeah, right. Why has why that suddenly changed whatsoever? I guess just because you have to do it just to, I don't yeah, know. I suppose. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with Eber on that point, um, certainly. I mean, it really is kind of a useless storyline point where it could just be that she was angry that she couldn't go back to Indianapolis because they didn't want her to be out of school for a week. And mm-hmm. she's angry that Buck's there and trying to ruin her life. And you wouldn't even have to have the antagonism between her and the mother. So yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I, I thought the, the only thing <clears> I noted is... Um, as a, another criticism is that it feels like for they try to sell it through dialogue is that Buck's a mess and he's not really taking care of the household and stuff that well. But I didn't think it was enough of a mess. No. When it first starts. Like, he comes in and it's like, yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's not altogether incompetent either. It's right, not he like, just... it's not that s- sequence in four rooms where... Tim Roth is, like, babysitting the kid and, like, you know, by the end of it, it's like there's dead hookers and the bed's on fire. You know, it's not, like, a disaster. I mean... The only thing that they do is that there's a scene where Macaulay Culkin and the young girl are coming down the stairs and there's, like, shit all over the stairs. Right. Like, they've left, like, toys and socks and food wrappers or whatever. So, they're, like, he's not cleaning. But... He doesn't really break anything and no. everything's sort of like taken care of. And yeah, I mean, it's not, like I said, it's not like a, I mean, there's a hint that he like broke some plates or something that were valuable, but it's like, 
you don't even see that. And it's, it doesn't but, feel like there's enough of, like, him growing in that sense enough. It seems like he's actually fairly competent when he comes in and he just gets better at it. Right, but again, isn't that the point that, like, he just has it in him? Like, that's what he's meant to do and he just hasn't realized it and this is his... Maybe, but it's like it's almost like the movie's, like, talking about things that you don't actually see. Yeah, that's times. true. Like, you know, the mom's, like, so worried when she's on the phone with him at one point about how he's handling things. And it's like he mentions a couple things, but it's like, ultimately, it's really not that bad. And it's like they was trying to sell something that they weren't showing. He's really just living the dream where he's got to work one day a year and then, like, he doesn't have to do sure, anything yeah. else. He gets yeah. to eat pie and go to the movies and smoke cigars and... Yeah. Um, have a like moderately attractive yeah. girlfriend. Right. It's 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 a, it's a good. It's 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 a fine movie. It's fine. Like, yeah. Um, like I I didn't have anything that like. It was a nostalgia choice for me, and I found it to be not as great as I remember it watching it, but I still enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. More um, so than Forty Eight Hours. <laughs> Better than One Crazy Song. I got died. I'll believe not, it. Not not as good as um Overboard. Um. So number four on the list is Crocodile Dundee, 1986, directed by Peter Feynman, starring Paul Hogan, Linda Kozlowski, and John Millian. Uh, it has an 87% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 59% from audiences. That is so weird. I think it's weird, too. So did you want to go ahead and tell us just a little bit about Crocodile Dundee and what you think about it? So, Sue... Uh, the Kozlowski character is um, a reporter uh, who lives in New York um, who finds out this story about this this bushman in Australia who's apparently lost half a leg to a crocodile and wants to go and investigate. She wants to do a story on him. So she goes to the outback and meets um, Michael J. Crocodile Dundee, uh, who doesn't is has both of his legs, played by Paul Hogan, who's this... Rough and kind of rustic, but charming and wise guy that just knows how to live life in the outback. He has all this wisdom. Um, he sort of like takes her on walkabout kind of, and they kind of grow romantically attracted to each other, but there's no like romance that's had there. Um, she convinces him to come back to New York to sort of broaden his horizons, which he does. Um, goes to New York and experiences what life is like in the city and meets prostitutes and fights pimps and has like makes friends with everybody because he's just this generally nice friendly guy and gropes you know transgenders in odd ways that's um that's the only only sequence even though it's so mild-mannered like and it's well-meaning on the character's part in some way like he's just so affable about all of it right it's the, it's the only sequence that i'm like Ugh. well because really. he thinks it's the right thing to do right yeah. and i mean the one the the first one that's like he's trying to take back to his hotel with him so he thinks it's a woman like he's not angry that this man was hitting on him he's just you know like generally genuinely confused that a man can dress like a woman and look like a woman, but not yeah. actually be a woman. And then it's when he's something he's never experienced, right? Before. And when he meets like another, right. like older, trans, like wealthy transgender who's hosting a party, he thinks that's the right thing to do is to check. Mm-hmm. Um, and they play it off where that's like he almost like wooing 
Yeah, which I think is also a little possibly problematic as well. A little. But, I mean, we're also putting it out of context for 30 years. Right. I mean, in the context of that time period, I mean, that was much more acceptable. It's, it's the oddest movie on this list because it's the only movie where there's no no real conflict at all. Like, there's... Like, typically in the fish out of water, like, films or whatever, the person goes, the fish, so to speak, goes to the strange place and is kind of taken advantage of or doesn't fit in or comes in conflict co- conflict with local authorities. And Crocodile Dundee just makes friends with everybody and everybody likes him and he handles every situation with, like, some sort of a plum. You know, and he's not portrayed as an idiot. Like, he can figure things out and he can learn how to behave in cer- certain social situations, even though he... <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in the movie is where the guy's doing coke at the party. And he thinks the guy's taking some kind of, like, nasal, like, right. anti-cold yeah. medication. Yeah. And convinces him to dissolve his cocaine in hot water. Or boiling water and, like... Yeah. Like absorb the vapors. Right, put, a and towel put a towel over his head. head. Like, nope, get get your head in there. Get right. your head in there. Yeah, yeah. Um and it's just laughed off. Like there's no like the guy doesn't come after him, you know? Right, yeah. I mean really the only conflict is him like knocking out a pimp a couple of times and getting saved by a chauffeur, basically. Yeah. Um you know, it's it's a really weird movie. And I I mean I saw Crocodile Dundee when I was pretty small. Um what, what year is it? Like 86. 86. So I would have been, you know, nine, ten years old when I saw this movie. And I, I liked it. And I think everybody like, you know, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Like everybody like, you know, all the things that you quote. And it sort of did lead to kind of a boom of like knowledge of Australia in a way, which I think was the whole purpose of the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, that's when I, when I was reading more about the history of the film. Uh, it was certainly Paul Hogan's goal to have a film that advertises Australia in some way to the rest of the world. And it was primarily made to be released in Australia as, as the main goal. And then, uh, it opened in America and it did really well. And it got quickly shot to other theaters and it became, I think it was the highest, second highest grossing movie that year. That's um, it just became like a box office smash, like all over the place. So, out of all, out of a lot of the movies that we've watched in general, and that I've seen, like in my, like the past like several years, it's one of like the most easygoing and calming movies where you're not really ever tense watching. It's just yeah. kind of easy to watch. And well, you could argue it's because there. I mean, you could argue it's because there's no plot. Really, it's just watching this. It's almost like a like a nature documentary in reverse where it's like you're just watching this guy from the outback being put in situations in a city that he's never been experienced never experienced before and just watching what happens and even like like you know so she's in a relationship with her editor at newsday or whatever Mm -hmm. and he's in love with her and he proposes to her and it's another thing where like in like you know a savage steve holland movie for instance that guy would be, like, actively trying to do bad things to Dundee or, like, trying to trick him or, you know, having, like, hiring somebody to go beat him up or... Right, there's no plot elements to the guy being an asshole. Because he's, just, he's not. Well, be, no, he, he is... Nah. He's an asshole. He's, he's he an elitist. It, he's an elitist who tries to 
at that dinner, like, make this guy, like, feel like shit the entire time. Right, right? but I mean, th- that's just because and he's he gets an punched in the face for it, which is appropriate. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I don't know. But I, that's the thing I like about it is, like, he's not a rube, you know? Right. Like, he, he gets this, even though he doesn't understand what the guy is saying necessarily, he understands the guy's being an asshole. And where he comes from, you just punch the guy in the face. Right. And that was, that's the end of it. But I thought that whole subplot was a little, a little weak. And it's like, why is this woman even with this guy? Like, there's nothing, there's nothing redeeming ever shown about the guy that she's with. He just seems like he's there as a stock character to be this jerk who. But just, he's really just a jerk in like two scenes. Otherwise, pretty much all the scenes that. Otherwise, he's just this inoffensive like milk toast that kind of just has a job. Get that many scenes. In about five scenes, I think. Mm. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Ultimately, like she falls in love with Dundee and right. confesses her love, and they end up together. And yeah, I um, can't remember Crocodile Dundee two, so I don't know like what the resolution of that is. Oh, Crocodile Dundee two's really good. It's it's it's, it's bad, but it's 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 really good. There, there, there's there's a there's a because because then they go back. Well, it's, it's the reverse. They start out in New York where they're living together, then they have to go back to Australia because there's like a drug cartel like after oh i guess i'm reporting and right there's a scene oh it's it's anyway for for how not good it is it's a really good out of all the movies on this list this is probably the most accurate fish out of water like to that that phrase yeah you know and it does a good job like and you kind of see like dundee sort of like acclimating himself to modern society which is also like a little sad but you also see him realize that that's happening, and then he has to just leave. Like, yeah. he realizes, right. I'm becoming too comfortable living in this yeah. penthouse and watching television and sitting on the bidet, and I gotta, you know, I gotta go, like, go on walkabout by going to the subway to go explore. Um, I, I genuinely laughed at this movie. Yeah. Where I don't know if I laughed. I probably laughed more at this movie maybe than the other movies, honestly. Yeah, I think that's definitely true for me as well. And, um... Uh, I definitely smiled like a whole lot throughout yeah, this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just charming. Yeah, uh, yeah. I like the scene where he like takes the kangaroo corpse and shoots shoots the poachers like yeah. cars apart. Like that that made me laugh. Yeah, there's like, this like laugh. sense of humor that he has to to a lot of things, and then there's like the inverted humor where like little things where he like he's I think he's he meets somebody on the street or he's in the no he's in the cab or something like that. And the windows roll down. And he sees somebody on the streets, and, yeah, he, and, he, and he's like, "Hi, Nick I'm, Dundee. Nick, I'm Nick Dundee from Australia." And he's like, you "I'll know, see you I'm, around, right? I'm going to be in town for a few days. I'll probably see you around." Like he's just going to see this random right. worker ever again in his life. Uh, so yeah, I just think that there's like a lot of like little charming scenes like that. Yeah. I'm, so I'm I'm surprised. That's the closest to the... bathroom humor maybe that we get is um the bidet. Right, but you know, scene. you know what the funny thing is, is like in another movie there would be some comical scene with like water shooting up in his face, yeah. or yeah. him trying to drink out of it, or he'd walk out with like a cup full of bidet water, like right. oh, it's a water fountain, and blah blah. But like immediately he realizes what it's for, opens the window, and shouts down to the street like it's right. for your backside, right. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just I don't know, yeah. it's it's um. But that's the closest I think we. Get so it's there. really surprising that the audience reaction is so poor. I was going to ask you about that. Why you think that? Yeah, is. well, let, let me. I'll give you two pieces of criticism and see if this ties into the audience, maybe, and I'll get your thoughts on the audience. So Paul Antanasio from the Washington Post says that Crocodile D has a double fish out of water structure. First, she's the fish, then he's the fish. 
but the movie doesn't go anywhere with it, mostly because the characters are such nullities. The filmmakers themselves must have been a little terrified by the violent daring-do they call on Hogan to perform because they've taken all the danger and all the sex out of his personality. What's left is harmless gallantry and innocuous little boy smiles. The writers, including Hogan himself, haven't given Kozlowski anything better to do. She's mostly limited to wearing skimpy dresses and tossing Hogan looks of oh, what a guy adoration, and she's not much of a reporter. Whenever a Crocodile does anything interesting, she's either not there, not taking it down, or not photographing it. As he says, ultimately, there's no drama in Crocodile ND because there's no real conflict between these characters. The reporter doesn't represent big city cynicism or misguided values of the rich. She's just as vaguely big-hearted as old Captain Kangaroo. For that matter, there's no real adventure either. <laughs> That's a funny line. Um, right. I mean, who cares? Like, I don't need every movie to be some like drama or have like super. I think that's why I like Crocodile Dundee is because I can just watch it. Like, I'm not like it's not. I don't know. There's no tension to it. It just it just happens in front of you. And I mean, he is affable and he is like boyish and you know it's 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 fun to watch him walk around with his like you know Australia like. Australian tribesman or bushman costume on and just interact. Like I, I love the scene where he's like talking to the prostitutes and he's genuinely like interested in like talking up these two prostitutes because he doesn't realize what a prostitute is. I don't know. It's just there's I don't know. It, it it's charming to me and I I think that that is lacking in a lot of movies that try to be too cynical or try to have that conflict, you know, between like the classes or whatever and. Yeah. I think it's okay. And it's there. And it's she just is not. It's just not. She is a terrible reporter. She is. Like the worst reporter. Like I don't understand how anyone has a job in. Well, you just gotta watch the sequel. There's a little bit more of her doing actual reporting. Okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's one I think I actually do agree with or care about. Maybe is better. Uh, it's not like I don't agree with anything he's saying there to some degree, but Ebert gets is kind of really upset by the end of this movie. In that it could have been better than what it was, which I mean, I think as a romantic comedy scene in a movie, like this is pretty, at least I remember it as a kid, like as goofy as it is, like being pretty memorable. Right. Like I remember this all my life is this idea that they're on the, he's trying to leave, it's at the subway, subway, the platform. platform. And all these people, it's so crowded that they can't get to each other. He's waiting for the subway. She comes down the steps after taking her heels off and running, like, you know, like the, the chase scene as she's trying to catch up to him. And then they have to communicate between the kind of, like, street thug and it seems, like, with the bandana and jean jacket around, you know, that he wears. And then the then the construction worker. And they have to pass messages between these guys to each other to show that they, you know, it's first so he knows she loves him. Right. And then he, like, walks on top of everybody's heads to get to her, like, because it's so crowded. I still remember that being, like, it's very memorable. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fun scene. It's funny that, so it's, it's two stereotypes they're communicating yes. between because yeah. it's, it's a big black guy and, right. a, and an Italian construction worker. Yeah, an worker. Italian, like, like Guido construction mm-hmm. worker. I am yeah. Italian descent, so. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, full disclosure. Um... <laughs> And they, they both have, like, a different, like, like patois or whatever in the yeah. way they talk. And it is sort of like, I don't know, it's whatever. It's it's a fun scene. And, like, Eber just needs to calm down. Yeah. Well, he, what he says is that 
And I do agree with him a little bit, is that he says that if it had, that the ending had the, had the love story been played up a little bit more, that it could have been, and I think this is high praise, it could have been like an officer and a gentleman at the end, rather than kind of this maybe cheesy, like it could have been much more satisfying right. and dramatic if they would have done it differently. Um, but they've shied away from drama so much throughout yeah, the rest I mean, of the movie. I mean, honestly, the most drama there is, is him getting in the fight with the pimp and his henchmen right. that lasts right. for like two minutes right. and then it's just over yeah. because the chauffeur comes and rescues him and that's it. Right. The incomparable Reginald Bell Johnson. Right. right. Uh, you know, as the chauffeur. Um, incomparable. So, any last thoughts about this? No, I mean, it's... It's an artifact of a different time, yeah. I think. And it's... Oh, real quick. Why do you think... Do you have any thoughts about the audience, though? No, I have no idea. Do you think it just, well, you like... Know, do you I, think I, over time, because, like, it's... Rotten Tomatoes is where we're taking all this right. from most of the time. Do you think it's a thing where it's, like, audiences 20 to 30 years later, where the where people have actually been putting their reviews up on the internet more? Do you think in the past 15 years, since probably, like, Rotten Tomatoes roughly has existed, that that the culture now just doesn't understand this relic. Right. I I think that if you didn't grow up in that time and understand what a cultural phenomenon it was when it happened, it probably doesn't make any sense why anyone would like this movie, which probably sounds like I'm damning it in some ways. But I mean, a lot of what these lists are based on is my nostalgia for things. And so I am fully cognizant of what it was like, like how big Crocodile Dundee was and how much people like, you know, you started seeing like the Foster's commercials and put another shrimp on the Barbie. I mean, there was all kinds of things that around that time, like it was this explosion of Australian, whatever, like romance sort of. And it, it really is just like, it's amazing that this one movie that's so lighthearted and so, you know, inoffensive could like cause all that to happen, but it really did. And I can understand how like, like, I kind of wish I would have watched this with my son because I think his reaction would have been like, why are we watching this movie? Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't be wrong in a way, but I mean, it doesn't make it any less, you know, appealing to me. Right. Okay, so number three on the list, 1988, Big, directed by Penny Marshall, starring Tom Hanks, Robert Loggia, uh, Elizabeth Birkins, John Hurd, has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 82% from audiences. Uh, we've talked briefly about Big very briefly during the Petty Marshall retrospective a few months ago. Um, did you want to go ahead and just give us a brief synopsis and what you what your major points are about this movie? Yeah, so um, Josh Baskin is this kid that uh, it's like New Jersey, I guess. Um, wants to go on this carnival ride. He's not tall enough to go on the ride. He's trying to impress this girl that he's infatuated with. So dejected, he goes over to this fortune teller machines Zoltar or Zoltan whatever it is um and you know puts his quarter in and it says it's granted one wish and he says he wishes to be big um the thing says wish granted and then he wakes up the next morning and he's Tom Hanks like this 30 year old grown man um tries to go back to find the machine he can't finds that it's disappeared um when he goes home like you know obviously it's like there's this adult predator in the house so he gets chased away um convinces his best friend that like it's really him um 
but and you know wants to find the machine so he can kind of like reverse the effects um so he gets a job at a toy company um with the idea that it's going to take some time like a month or whatever to find the zoltar machine um and basically impresses the owner of the company with his like childlike enthusiasm they play what probably is the most iconic scene in the movie and maybe one of the most iconic scenes of the 1980s um nfao schwartz of dancing on the giant uh piano where they play heart and soul by like jumping back and forth um so he gets like promoted you know he meets this girl who's like like smitten with his charms she obviously like thinks of him as an adult but he's still a child and tries to develop a relationship with him that he can't you know like obviously whatever give back to in an adult way because he's still a child um basically i don't know like becomes disillusioned with life as an adult wants to go back to being a kid again um and then goes back to being a kid i don't know how to explain it like that's pretty much it so what what is it specifically that you like about this movie? I want to guess one is Tom Hanks. Yeah, he's the best part of it. Um, I really like the fact that... So, you know, th- th- this movie came out when I was a little younger than what Tom Hanks is in this movie, but... You know, as you grow up, you kind of have those same ideas all the time. Like, why does why don't adults take me seriously? Why can't I do the things I want to do? Like, why can't I be an older and, you know, I can't wait until I'm like 18 and have my freedom. And when you become older, you know, after some time, you can look back, you know, through the whatever, the foggy like perspective of hindsight and say like, oh, I should have appreciated you know, the small things I had and the life I had. And, you know, Penny Marshall does an amazing job of encapsulating both of those feelings, you know, in a 90-minute movie. Um, and Hanks does an amazing job of playing a person who's physically a man and mentally a child. And for being, like, I assume Hanks was in his 30s at this point when he made this so, movie. Yeah. Um really like the the physicality of his performance and his the emotional range he shows on his face and like you really feel bad for him at times because he is like this child that's separated from his family and that first night in new york is 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 a tough scene yeah it's it's it, it, when it, he starts crying because he's alone in the city and he's never been away from yeah and it's it, it, it they all do a good job marshall and hanks both of making you like genuinely feel empathetic and scared and you know you want like because he's not a bad kid like there's nothing like and he actually is a good man in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. by having like this childlike you know whatever like childlike wonder and perspective um and you feel like it's it's cool because it's a great love story that doesn't actually have any like real romance in it where like she has you know the you think that maybe she's going to turn into a little girl so she can be with him but like 
you know, he goes back to being a kid and she stays an adult and like, that's okay. Like it's, it's a good ending and he gets to go back and be with his, you know, his family again. And that's, it's really, it's, it's really heartwarming and it's really effective and maybe one of my favorite Tom Hanks performances, maybe my favorite. Mm. I don't know. Well, I like Tom Hanks a lot and I think the Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is definitely not underrated, but I think that Tom Hanks as we, who are we talking about? We were talking with Spike Lee last week and that maybe it'll take like a posthumous appreciation mm-hmm. of him. Although really like, you know, his Oscar win the other night was sort of almost like the lifetime achievement thing for him, I think. Yeah. But. I mean, Spike Lee last week, between winning that in some way, yeah, like lifetime achievement for screenplay, which is what they always love to give people that right. they, and, and then his reaction to Green Book winning um, of, you know, kind of turning his back to the whole thing and everything. Yeah. It is so encapsulated Spike Lee. Like, that whole thing is, that you know, like, he's really talented, and at the same time, like, he's just such a controversial figure. In, in so anyway, game. so, like, my point mm-hmm. was that I, I think Tom Hanks is the same way. I think that, I think everyone likes Tom Hanks. I don't think you can find many people who would tell you they don't like Tom Hanks. But I think that Tom Hanks is somebody that we won't really appreciate until you can truly look back upon the entire breadth of his work and just realize, like, how consistent he was, you know, how he doesn't give bad performances. You know, he always is at least, like, somewhat memorable in his roles. And he's kind of, like, been able... Like, like I I love Clint Eastwood, but I feel like Clint Eastwood has never been able... To be anything but Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like Tom Hanks is able to be different characters. Mm-hmm. And feels like different characters. And leaves you with different feelings in every movie that you see him in. I'd love to see Tom Hanks as like a villain in his old age in a movie. I think he would be really fantastic as like a really menacing. Like in the way that I think Harrison Ford sort of failed at this. And like What Lies Beneath. Mm-hmm. Kind of trying to play that role. I think Tom Hanks could really succeed. At that because I think he's a talented little factor. This is going to maybe sound controversial in its own right. Don't you think Tom Hanks is like the uh, a better version of Jimmy Stewart? Not better, just the modern version. Modern I would say. Version? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, Jim, I, I think there's more. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's really good. Yeah, but it's like I I think Hanks has a lot more depth and a lot more range than Stewart did. Hanks doesn't allow himself to be a bumbling idiot as much as Jimmy Stewart would have just allow himself. He did earlier in his career, but he stopped it. But, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Right. So, maybe early in his career. man with one red shoe. Yeah. Like, you know, the, you know, the bachelor party. Like, you know. Well, because he was able to, he was able to not f- allow himself to be typecast as just a comedic actor. You know, yeah. where he was able to, like, sure. move into serious roles. And yeah, then, and I think, I, in the, one of the notes I made was, like, you can see in this, especially this movie, I think, where... What is it? This was 88. So six years later, he's doing Philadelphia. Right. I mean, you can see that clearly in this movie that that dramatic range is there. Yeah. That that, that ability to make people feel for the character is there in him. When up until this point, it's like, it, it is. It's Bachelor's Party. It's Money Pit. Right. It's like those type of movies. 
um, Splash, you know, and where, where he's an everyman, but he's still a comedy figure. And this really is the beginning of that transition, I think, yeah. in a lot of ways. And he has an amazing ability to go between, like, pure physicality in his mm-hmm. comedy, like, where it is just all about, like, wiry, flailing limbs and his rubber face. Yeah. And move into being, like, a very serious and respected actor. And... Yeah, it, it, I, I think really this, like you just said it, I think this is the point where you can kind of see the bridge between those two, like, halves of his career. Yeah. Um, Which, until I rewatched, I never thought of that before, that this is really kind of, I, it was yeah. only through this viewing that I realized, oh, yeah, this is the point where you can start seeing that there's a real dramatic actor in there. I love the scene in this movie where they're playing the computer game. Mm-hmm. Like, I was always really... I always wanted to play that game when I was a kid. Like I was yeah. like, man, I want to, I want to fight the wizard in the ice cave or whatever. Right, I mean, yeah. it's just, um, I don't know. Like it, again, like that's part of my escapism I and mean, the idea of like him, like being in this toy store and being able to, you know, like have this job that at the time in my life would have been a dream job. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I thought there's like, there's so many like little great lines that just like, I, I didn't realize it when I was younger watching this that make me laugh now. When he gets the promotion to where he's testing out the toys and his friends with him and they go in the office and he's like explaining to him what his job is. And he's like, and the kid's like, his friend who's still a child at that point is like, oh, so you're a vice president now. So if the president dies, do you become president? He's like, oh no, they got hundreds of, uh, hundreds of vice presidents. And it's like those kind of things. Yeah. Like, you know, um, you know, or these little things I didn't understand as a child that as an adult, like I get a lot more and think are really funny. Yeah. Um, some of the sec- some of the really subtle sexual humor and stuff that maybe I didn't quite understand at eight, right. eight or nine years old is, is kind of funny now. And Yeah, because she's like coming on to him and she feels like he's coming on to her even though yeah. he never has right. any idea that he's like doing yeah. anything. I didn't like, understand the, the cringeworthiness of some of that. Yeah, like, it is pretty she's cringy. she's trying to come on to him, like it's... Right, but it's, it, it's cool because it's like... I mean, there definitely are things in movies from the 80s where older men are, or older women are hitting on, like, pubescent, like, children, basically. Um, and in this, like, because she doesn't know, like, it, it's cringeworthy only in the fact that you have that outer knowledge right. of it. And not right. cringeworthy because she's doing No, that. no, it's because, yeah, you know yeah. that she's he's really a child. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also, like, a wholesome, in some ways, you know. It's just, it's, it's a fun movie, you know, it definitely holds up as well, if not better than, like, most movies from this era in terms of being, like, rewatchable and being really relevant and fun. And again, like, I think that it does a really good job of giving this really complex view of what it means to, like, be a kid and want to be an adult and vice versa, you know, in a fun, relatable way and you know, at a brisk pace, and it's just, it's it's really good. Yeah. Another thing that I don't think is talked about much in this movie is the idea of the, is how heart-wrenching, because it's ignored for so long, it must be for those parents. You just get little glimpses of it. Right. And how hard this situation is on these parents, and it's largely ignored except for a couple scenes. But, like, it's horrifying. Right, and, yeah. and they just kind of like really like. I mean, I know that's not the story, but it's like it really is glossed over to some degree. Uh, well, because then it becomes a completely different movie. Like yeah. you can't have fun if you're imagining like right. the parents like weeping themselves to sleep every yeah, night because right. their child is sure. gone. Yeah. 
So Jonathan Rosenbaum, um, which we've I've read reviews from him before. He also writes for the Chicago Reader, which uh, our, our good friend Dave Kerr, Dave Kerr would yeah. write for. Uh, I think Rosenbaum actually might be meaner than Dave Kerr mm. could ever be a lot of times because I read a lot of his reviews and it's hard to get bites out of Rosenbaum. It's like very complex and sometimes vague or non incomprehensible, you know, things that he says. But I'll go, I'm going to go through one of his reviews. He writes very short reviews like Dave Kerr does. I guess that's the reader style. So he says yet another comedy about a boy occupying a man's body. This one produced by James Brooks and Robert Greenhunt, written by Steven Spielberg's sister, directed by Penny Marshall. He says a teenager attends a carnival, makes a wish about growing up to a fortune-telling machine and promptly turns into Tom Hanks. While this is marginally better and more serious than most of the other movies of the cycle, the psychological ramifications of the change still aren't very convincing. The hero in this case becomes an ace executive at a toy company and wins the heart of Elizabeth Perkins, but ultimately decides to become a Norman Rockwell teenager once again. Again, the overall premise is milked for some mild titillation involving hero sexual innocence, making one wonder if the genre's popularity might involve some deeply sublimated form of kiddie porn, arguably the distilled ideological essence of squeaky clean Reaganism. In keeping with the overall Spielbergian metaphysics, even Skid Row has a scrubbed look here. But as far as the movie's message considers, if only grown-ups could be more like kids, Jerry Lewis did an infinitely better job of plugging in the 1950s. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you don't read this man's reviews. This uh, guy's a bitter bitch. Yeah, he's, he's, very, he's, he's more bitter than Dave Kerr, because at least Dave Kerr's funny. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know this was a genre. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, like, you think about things like a year before this, I'm thinking vice versa. Right. Um, what else? There's another one around that time period that, like, two, two a young boy and an uh, adult man switch bodies. So oh, there, there are a few around this mean? time period that that happens. Okay. I, I mean... Which I think, and, and right around this time period. So I think... He probably has those two movies in mind. I can't remember what the other one is. Yeah, I mean, they're, those in mind they're not memorable to me. Yeah. Although the old man and the young guy switching bodies yeah. really ring. Like father, like son. Right. Uh, Dudley, Moore, Dudley Moore and um, Kirk Cameron. You're right. And then vice versa with Judge Reinhold. Uh, and yeah. I can't remember who the child was. Fred Savage, I think. That's It's still different. I agree. Yeah. Because it's, I don't know. But I think that's what he's thinking of when he, when he, when he says that. I mean, obviously, this is a better movie than those two. Yeah, he acknowledges that. Marginally, uh, be- marginally better, right, more serious. Marginally. Um, <laughs> he uses a lot of really good adjectives at times, like to show his bitterness. I do like the Reaganism. That. I don't know, man. It's just. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't get where it's like he's. I, I I get what he's saying that the idea that it's like by having a plot like that, there's this idea of. There's some titillation there potentially, if but it's like you have to be looking for that. But there's no real, like you know, right? And yeah, go ahead. She doesn't know, and I agree. I don't know. Like I don't see. I don't find it titillating. Maybe right. I'm just yeah. not a. It's cr- 
fucking pervert or predator, but right, yeah. like I it just it's it's awkward, right? Because you know, and she doesn't, right? And it's kind of like a facepalm. And Josh, thing. Like, Josh oh, is man. clueless, like, right, to the advances. Sure. But it's not. I don't know. It's she's she's in love with his childlike innocence, yeah, because she's so used to like jaded, career oriented, you know, sharks, right? Which she acknowledges at some point or implies when she says something like, "Oh, that makes so much sense now," right? <laughs> when she finds out that he's and he's has the opportunity. You know, to be a, like, I don't even know, like, what you would right, call yeah, that. Yeah. But, and, like, doesn't. Right. Like, the right choices, man. You know, eh, fuck that guy. Okay. Well, at least I know somebody else to bring up now. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I guess whatever. Like, I wasn't an adult in the 1980s, so I yeah. don't have that same perspective right. as this man. So maybe, yeah. m- maybe if I was, like, a bitter man in well, 1988. I, 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 my, my thought would be, not that you can't critique not that the critic can't find things that the writer wasn't consciously thinking about sure but i wonder if gary rawson and spielberg are like consciously or unconsciously thinking about that as they're writing this like i don't think that's the point that's the point of the story i don't even think i don't think they are I, I, i think the point of the story is that Hey, wouldn't it be nice to be a grown up? And then you actually have to live right. as a grown up, and then you realize, oh, I actually miss things about childhood. That's right. the point. Of the I think story. it's exactly the way that I said it. Right. Like, I don't yeah. understand. Right. right. I don't know. So like, does it, it's it's almost like pulling something that is such a minor element and not part of the major overall arc of the right. And I think it speaks to your own like weird agenda or whatever. Agreed. Just one. Hmm. Only, only top critic criticism that I could find was Jonathan Rosenbaum. I don't know why he's a top critic. He's very well respected. I like Dave Kerr better. I never called Dave Kerr a motherfucker, I don't think, but this man. (laughs) Okay, any final thoughts on this movie? Again, I think that we, we talk about a lot of movies that I enjoy because of nostalgia and because it reminds me of specific times in my life and watching them again as an adult, sometimes you don't have the same reaction. Like, you don't get the same feeling from them. I still get a nostalgic feeling from a lot of movies. Like, Uncle Buck, you know, I remember watching Uncle Buck as a kid. And I remember liking Uncle Buck as a kid. <clears throat> and I still thought it was it was fine. Yeah. But I didn't find that it, like, moved me at all watching it this time. But, like, Big is still a really good movie, I think. And I... And I don't know, I... Has Frankie watched it, do you know? No. No. I, I, well, he's a little old for it now, maybe. But it's like, I, despite, there's there's a lot of, going to be a lot of dated elements. But I think the general premise, I think, is something a kid would still right. enjoy. I think when you, I think when you see it as a kid, you might miss, like, some of, like, the more nuanced elements of it. But the broad strokes, I think, yeah. still hit you. Sure. And as an adult, I think the nuance makes it more, like, like I don't know, like appealing and yeah. heartwarming in some ways, and it does kind of make you like reminisce about what it was like to be a kid and how easy like your life was, even though you thought your life was really hard and sure. unfair. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think Penny Marshall does a really good job of like 
I think she has a very soft touch when it comes to the way that she deals with certain subject matters. And she's certainly, you know, very, I don't know what the right word is, but very adept at being like just the right amount of commentary without overriding her scenes with a message. Right. Does that make sense? So like you can get things from her movies without feeling like you're being like punched in the face with the thing. And I think that's a skill that a lot of directors lack. And I think that it's really maybe her best film. And, you know, again, one of my favorite Hank's performances like of all time. And I don't know. I I think it's definitely worth watching in the modern, modern era. Okay. So number two on the list is Beverly Hills Cop from 1984, directed by Martin Bress, starring Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, and Ronnie Cox. has an 82% from both critics and audience also on hmm. Rotten Tomatoes. Do you want to go ahead and give a brief plot synopsis on what you like so much about this movie? Uh, so Eddie Murphy is Axel Foley, a young, brash Detroit cop who kind of goes outside of like normal police procedures, you know, whatever to fight crime um has this ridiculous like car chase scene where he's trying to sell like bootleg cigarettes um that ends up getting him reprimanded um he's visited by his friend mikey who's coming back from california who's revealed did a stint in prison um and has these german bearer bonds with him um after a night of drinking uh axel's knocked out mikey's killed so axel wants to investigate his murder and is told he's not allowed to. So he takes vacation to go to Beverly Hills where Mikey had been working with a mutual friend of theirs from like, I guess you're supposed to assume their high school days at this posh, like art gallery. Um, Axel goes and finds that Mikey worked for a guy named Victor Maitland. Uh, when Axel tries to confront Victor Maitland, he's thrown through a window and arrested where he meets, um, Taggart and Rosewood, uh, who were two LAPD detectives, or I guess not LAPD, but Beverly Hills Police Department detectives, um, is warned off of not, like, investigating, but still, you know, tries to investigate what happened, finds this large conspiracy of, like, fraudulent, like, importing of, like, drugs and these bearer bonds, um, and basically ends up, like, cracking the case and helping the Beverly Hills Police Department take down Maitland, who's, like, a high-ranking drug dealer and um really fun movie i think uh one of eddie murphy's like most iconic performances is axel foley um one of the better examples i think of competent police in the 1980s which is kind of rare um where even though axel foley like breaks the rules he's still a pretty keen detective and has a good eye for situations and a good ability to kind of like root out the truth um maybe one of the first ones where he sort of sort of sets the i don't know what you would call it like a recurring like motif of his in movies which is pretending to be something he's not in order to gain information or gain like a position of power over somebody else um in this movie he pretends to be a rolling stone reporter a flower delivery man, a customs inspector, um, all these like small things. Um, it's played where you can see that he respects the other cops. Like even though uh, Taggart and Rosewood 
are kind of portrayed to be like somewhat bumbling sort of um he's able like it's never mean-spirited like he gets over on him but he's still trying to kind of protect them because they're fellow police officers um some really good like kind of action scenes for a for a comedy mm-hmm. especially the shootout at the end which I'd forgotten until I watched it again how much I love that shootout at Maitland's estate, like with the um, the semi-automatics. And I, yeah, it has I, just the right amount of comedy to it and tension. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, great performances in um, Rosewood and Taggart. Yeah. Um, I really like um, what is his name, Bali, whatever the police lieutenant's name is, Balling Ballingway or. The, you mean the, the old man, the guy that's like yeah, in charge, Bo- the chief? Bogomil? Yeah. No, 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 the, the the lieutenant, like their, their boss. Oh, yeah, yeah, Bogomil, uh, Ronnie Cox. Yeah, yeah, Ronnie Cox's performance yeah, Cox is really is good. Yeah. Um, some really great, like, small things that are sort of like, I don't know if you would call it, like, police procedural, but, like, things you don't necessarily see in, like, cop movies. Like, when they're at the strip club, he's taking them to the strip club, and the two guys come in to case the place, and Axel... Yeah like, immediately recognizes what's happening and sets it up where they can take him down without any injury to anybody. And it's 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 really it's fun. It's one of those times where you realize, I, I love that scene so much. It's, like, one of my favorite scenes. Like, for, first of all, like, for the time period, see, you got Vanity Six Nasty Girl playing right. in the background. You have Axel, who just gives no fucks whatsoever, sitting there kind of dancing. and Right, drinking along. his scotch and moving his head back right. and forth. And then Taggart's really uncomfortable. Rosewood's kind of in awe, which shows things about their characters, where Taggart isn't out of his element, but he he's uncomfortable because he's on the job. Right, he knows he's breaking right. police procedure. Right, Rosewood is too captivated by the situation right. to realize how much he's breaking the rules. So you get character development for those two. And then the fact that Axel recognizes before either of those two do what's going on with these two guys that are coming in to rob the place. So it shows how keen he is in his observation skills. Tells Taggart while still sitting there dancing, you know, and giving Billy money to for the stripper. She really likes you. Right, yeah. And it's like, while still having, like, this good time, is still sitting there observing and watching this crime starting to happen, tells Taggart what's going on. And Taggart looks, assesses the situation, sees that he's correct. And that's the first real moment of connection you have between him and Taggart, where Taggart realizes, oh, this guy isn't just this kind of, you know, flamboyant asshole who's coming here trying to step on our turf. This guy's a real detective who can see these things and then sets it up, you know, doing a voice that he did in his comedy bit. Um, He's doing one of his uncle's voices from the comedy bit when he's, like, doing the drunk act. And, you know, and they take him down and everything. And it's, like, it's just a really good... Really well done scene. Yeah. Yeah, Very, very, very brisk and very, like, exciting. Yeah, and that's a long description of that scene, but it's, like, I think there's a number of things going on that scene beyond just the way the scene plays out in terms of the action. Right. I think there's a number of character moments that's happening in that scene as well that I think are really yeah. effective. And that happens throughout the entire movie where you yeah. can see that, um, you see that like growing connection between him and these police officers where they all recognize this common bond of being like in law enforcement. <clears throat> Victor Maitland is a great villain. Um, 
I wish I knew the actor's name who plays his primary henchman. Jonathan Banks. Um, Jonathan Banks is... Oh, it is Jonathan Banks. It is. That's y- crazy. Young Jonathan Banks, yeah. Right. You know, and I was looking Didn't at come him. back into our consciousness until um, right, Breaking, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Yeah. So, Jonathan Banks is also... Also in Armed and Dangerous playing a bad guy. And a detective in um, 48 Hours. Right, yeah. Who gets killed in yeah. the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, Jonathan Banks, great character actor for a tough guy. Like. But really great performance by him. Um, God, there's so many great scenes in Beverly Hills Cop. Like when Foley goes to the country club to confront Maitland and throws Banks over the the shrimp table. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you, you ruined the buffet at the something club. And yeah. it's just, it's really funny yeah. the way that it's, it's said. And yeah. I don't know. It's, I, it's, I love the Ronnie, the, the Bogomil, like the, the lieutenant, like him smirking at times at Axel, even before Tiger and Rosewood become friendly with him, it's like there's some sort of begrudging respect. Well, it's it's when a- it's it's after the strip club right. scene when Axel right. presents this grand story about how yeah. he led that they were just following him and he was like doing he was in the wrong and they took down these two armed criminals and he didn't know what was going on and then Tiger just has to like you know give it up, which plays into the end of the movie. Right. Where, like, everyone's lying to protect Foley, and Taggart goes along with it, which shows, like, that that connection has become real. Right. Um, yeah, it's nice foreshadowing. But just, it's it's a really, it's a fun movie. Um, it's not nearly, like, I remembered it being really, like, insensitive at times. Like, I, I thought there was a lot more... Like, there's the... What is his name? There's the Bronson Pinchot character at the mm-hmm. beginning... Yeah. And I thought that there was a lot more, like, innuendo with Foley, like, kind of mocking him for being, like, gay. Like, you yeah. get the impression, yeah, and it, it doesn't not, happen, no, so I don't know why not. I thought that. Right, yeah. But uh, it's just I so many... I think a very charming and funny performance by Pinchot in that spring role. It is. Role. Yeah. It is. And it's it's done with a measure... Like, Foley has a measure of respect for this guy sure. that just knows his shit and mm-hmm. is doing, like, his job... In the way that Foley, I guess, kind of feels like he does his own job, which is, you know, like he's just good at it. One of my favorite opening scenes of any movie in the 80s with the um, ridiculous, like, cop car chase of the um, tractor trailer full of, like, the stolen cigarettes. um, And Foley hanging on the back on this chain, which is actually, it's a really, it's a really amazing way to introduce a character because... He does. He's not doing anything. Like he, he didn't catch the criminals. He didn't seal the deal. I mean, and obviously it's because the other police officers showed up and sort of like, sort of broke up his patter with him. But at the same time, like he really is just hanging on for dear life as this tractor trailer's careening through the streets of Detroit. Um, yeah. It also one of my another one of my favorite things about the opening of this movie is just the random scenes of like Detroit. Of people walking around Detroit and like living in Detroit and really sets up the juxtaposition without being without spending too much time on it because you're doing it over the credits of how much different Detroit is from Beverly Hills and it does it in a really subtle way that you don't have to see Axel like walking through Detroit for 10 minutes and seeing like poverty and people like that aren't living this glamorous life because it just kind of sets it up for you and then gets the action moving right away with the car chase and then the death of his friend. And that's actually, those are really good scenes too, where you see that even though Axel's committed to being a detective, that he's got this maybe questionable past with this person that's done time in jail for being a thief. 
but is still able to like see him as a human being and relate to him and drink with him and he still loves him. And it really sets up Axel as being like, even though he comes off as like cocky and arrogant and, you know, cocksure or whatever, that he really does have a good heart and he does care about the people in his life. I don't know. It, like, yeah, I honestly, and, he, and he gets caught on that by, I can't remember her name in the movie, but it's Jenny. Jenny. Yeah. He gets caught on that by Jenny. Like, basically, she's like, you know, well, I can see you're, like he's being that cocksure attitude. He has that cocksure attitude and kind of make, is making jokes. And she's like, basically, well, I see you're still an asshole. Right. And he, like, just laughs, you know? I mean, like, she can, like, see right through, like, the, the facade that he puts up. So when you when you proffered, like, this idea to me that we were going to do this list and you sent me the list of movies you mm-hmm. thought and, you know, I picked... I knew this movie was going to be on it, but I forgot how good this movie was and how much I enjoyed it. And I didn't think this movie was going to stand the test of time. Like, I thought I would watch it and be like, okay, like, I see why I like this as, like, a 10-year-old kid. Um, which is really odd that I watched this movie at such a young age. Um, but I, I saw it when I was pretty young. Yeah. It was one of those things, where, like, everybody was talking about on the playground. You had to have seen Beverly Hills Cop to, like, be, like, quote-unquote cool. Which, and it came out when I was, like, seven. So, I, I must have seen this when it came out on video. So, probably, like, 87 or 88. Um, I actually, I can tell you this. Like, I actually know. Because um, I want to say that back then, it took VHS closer to two years. It was about two years, yeah. To come out. I, I watched it. And you know the story. But it's like, I, I watched this. We had moved into our new house. And we had an actual VCR that we owned and yeah. rent at the time. Right. So I, I remember, like, it had to have been 87 when I saw it. Yeah. Um, I think that's about right for me. And like that's, So that would probably be around the time that it came out on video, I think. is probably around 87. But I, this was the first movie that I, that I saw with this kind of language in it. That yeah. my mom just... My mom let me rent it. And I watched it. And then... She was cooking dinner, and she heard the language because after that car chase sequence with the truck in the beginning, uh, he comes back to the to the station. Right. And great, inspe- great inspe- scene. Inspector Todd, uh, his boss, um, who's uh, that's an interesting dude in his own right. The guy that plays that, he's because he, that's the only movies he ever starred in because he's an actual cop. Um, the guy that plays Inspector Todd, and it's just nothing but like. F bomb after F bomb, like right. you know, every variation of fuck, fucking fuck, like right. it shows up, and my mom was like, "Turn that off! Like, what are you? Like, you can't watch that." And then she went back to doing things she was doing, and I put it back in the VCR. And when she realized I was watching it again, that's when she like sat me down and explained to me about language and like when you're allowed to use it and when you're not, which I thought. Um, Probably is why I cuss so much in my life now around because of Axel Foley. Yeah, because yeah, right. but like in my private life, I I, I curse a lot. Yeah, but same here. but she also taught me that young age because of that. Like there's situations outside the home where you don't do that, and I think it kind of that that me, but. that scene in the mm-hmm. in the squad and down into the locker room is so fantastic, mm-hmm. mostly because of the interactions between Axel and Paul Reiser. Yes, like Paul Reiser and Jeffrey, I think right. Mm-hmm. Um. Just, like, his smarmy, like, you don't even get the sense that he's out to get Axel or, like, he's just this weird, smarmy, like, hanger-on that wants to be part of, you know, Axel getting his ass reamed. Yeah. And gets called out by Todd, like, right away to, like, you know... Oh, this this isn't even my locker. Like it's just like, and even so, though it's not as good of a movie, the second one has some great Paul Reiser stuff in it. I don't know if you remember. What I don't he, remember he has the to second pretend one to be all. Inspector Todd when Beverly Hills calls. Like it's there's good stuff with Paul Reiser in the second one. Um, but just so many great little moments in it, and so many great performances, and it really flows well from scene to scene, and yeah. 
it allows Eddie Murphy to be funny without being a clown, which I think is really important because he is. And I, you know, I mean, I was really young at this time and like, I've only seen like a lot of these movies from an adult perspective, obviously like far, far past, you know, the release, but it's such a juxtaposition in the character that Eddie Murphy plays in this movie, as opposed to 48 hours, which was, I think released two years before Beverly Hills Cop. I think 48 hours is like 82. Yeah. In that he is kind of like a like like a shucking and jiving like huckster in Forty Eight Hours, and he's not allowed like even though he has these elements of I don't know like like he is portrayed as like a wise and like street smart character. They do kind of make him a fool, and he does come out the wrong end of who is it? Nick Nolte in Forty Eight Hours is that right? Yeah. Um, of Nick Nolte's like brutish, you know machismo or whatever and letting him really be a star in this movie i think is pretty bold in like the mid 80s and really like eddie murphy is one of my favorite actors of the 80s and i think that he's got along with this like two other roles that i consider to be like preeminent like roles at that time so in like golden child and coming to america which i think are both like amazing movies um coming to america another movie that could have made this list but but didn't because we want to talk about it some other time, like for spoilers. Um, Month out spoilers, yeah. Right. Um, just really, I don't know, like I really was entertained the whole time. I laughed a lot. I was like invested in the movie again and I, really just a great like action comedy. Yeah. And set the stage, I think, for a lot of other movies that are also really good. Um, to be successful and to like catapult Eddie Murphy into mm-hmm. being like this along with his stand-up comedy into being like one of the stars of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just, I don't know. I'm curious like what the criticism is of it. Well, and I, you know what? I, I probably already know what the criticism, but actually I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, one, one minor criticism that I read in a couple different places was how, Oddly, that it was maybe too much of a vehicle for Eddie Murphy in the sense that it seems like, and I do not agree with this at all, but in the sense that the minor characters weren't very fleshed out. And I just think that's not true. I think they do a really good job with Taggart, Rosewood, right. and Bogomil, like, of really fleshing those characters out and giving them distinct personalities and different ways that they react to action. Right, while still letting it be a vehicle for, sure. for Eddie Murphy. Right. yeah. Like, I, I think, like, you know, when you go back to, oh, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's like, I think this movie does a really good job, and this probably is maybe way too highfalutin for Beverly Hills Cop, but, you know, Henry James, you know, said something along the lines is that, like, the plot reveals character, and character determines plot, mm-hmm. something along those lines, and I think this job, this movie does a really good job of holding true to that sentiment, where... You know, the the action, like the scene we talked about in the nightclub, revealed character. Right. You know, and then those characters determine the way the plot goes. And I think they worked very nicely hand in hand. Yeah, it's really well done in that yeah. respect. And, um, and I think those minor characters really add to that. And again, like, I really like the fact that no one ever says that Eddie Murphy is a bad cop. Right. Like, it's never... The, the they question his methods. But it, not, it's one of the problems I have with 48 Hours is that you're supposed to think... That Nick Nolte is a great cop, but n- number one, he's surrounded by incompetent boobs. 
number two, he has like the most ridiculously like improper methods for doing things. And number three, you never really see him be like a great cop. Like Eddie Murphy's character is the one that basically figures everything out. And he's kind of this brutish lout that can't be a good boyfriend that is sort of racist and homophobic. And I don't know. It's just like, I really like the fact that you're allowed to see this camaraderie form between this group of people. Even the two other detectives that they send out to follow him after they pull Taggart and Rosewood, there's a begrudging respect that they give for Eddie Murphy that you can see, like, this camaraderie between these, like, men that all do the same job, like, recognizing, even though they are different, that they have, like, more commonalities. Yeah, and even though Rosewood and Taggart and those two detectives, and I should remember their names, like, I know everybody's name in this movie. I've known it for too many years of my life. But those two, they're at odds with one another because they're in competition, But I also find it refreshing at the end that when everything's going down at Maitland's place and, like, somebody has to go to this, you know, like, the the storage place and somebody has to go to Maitland's place, they tell them and it's just like, okay, we're going to go here. And they still work together even though they are in competition for kind of recognition and stuff like that. To be, like, the best team. Right, yeah. And and I thought that, like, is refreshing that it's like that that doesn't become a plot element. It's like when the shit's going down, like, they still work together and... Like so Another really small element from this movie, and I don't know why it impressed me so much, but when Taggart punches Foley in the stomach mm-hmm. and Bogomil comes out and is like, do you yeah. want to file right. a complaint? Like, do you wish to press charges? Like, so many times in cop movies from the time, like, you could see, like, the loose cannon detective punch a suspect or punch, like, a prisoner and get away with it because that's just his style. And it's kind of, I don't know if refreshing, but it's just interesting that... You know, it really establishes the by-the-book nature of the Beverly Hills PD. Right. It establishes why they're trying to do things the right way. And, again, like, against that criticism that you said, like, builds character with four people interacting with each other in a scene that could otherwise have just been, like, not existed or just been, like, a blow-off scene. And it kind of matters. And I really like the fact that there's so many of those small things in that movie you know, that build those characters and build those relationships. And, like, Bogomil does come off as being, like, a really good authority figure. He's not, like, the lieutenant who's a dick or he's not the lieutenant that's bumbling, that can't see what's happening under his nose, you know, and there's no corruption. Like, they're doing things the right way. I don't know. I just, I I really... Out of all the the rewatches, I found... Crocodile Dundee to be the most surprising in terms of just how much I enjoyed it, thinking I was going to be like, I was not going to enjoy it as much. And this movie being so much more, so relevant and so watchable, like, you know, 20 years-ish more probably than that since I've seen it. My favorite memory of Beverly Hills Cop, like as a tangent, is... um. I think it was CBS used to have the Sunday night movie, maybe. Yes. Um, So they showed Beverly Hills Cop one week and RoboCop the next. And it was the funniest foul language dubbing I've ever seen in my life. And I can't remember anything. Like Beverly Hills Cop has some great, especially the Todd scene, because they don't cut anything. They just like have another actor dub over it. My my favorite, because I can't remember any of the specific lines from... um, from Beverly Hills Cop, it was in RoboCop where uh, 
crap, who said, I think somebody's talking to Clarence Boddicker, and the line is, the line in the movie is actually like, we're going to shove so much blow up your ass, you're going to shit snow for a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're going to shove so much something up your nose, you're going to sneeze. And it was like ridiculous, yeah. like the way, and like the mouths don't match, it's a right. different voice, but like I always love those. I don't those. know how you would do that dubbing with Beverly Hills Cop. But they did it. Like yeah, I swear to God, they, they don't cut anything out right. but the nudity. Yeah. And, like, some of the, like, overt, like, violence. Yeah. But all the foul language scenes, it's just, like, another voice. Like, I, the guy that got to do Eddie Murphy was so, like, one note off of Eddie Murphy's voice. And it's, like, a note lower. So it was, like, this Eddie Murphy's, like, kind of, like, statico, like, fast-paced, you know, tenor. Mm-hmm. And then this baritone would drop in, like, every time they replaced yeah. it. So I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. It was one of my favorite watchings of Beverly Hills Cop. Okay, so Ebert gives it two and a half stars. Okay. And says, even while we're watching the thrilling chase, however, stirrings, talking about the beginning, stirrings of an ease are beginning to be felt. Any movie that begins with a chase is not going to be heavy on originality or inspiration. At this point, the movie can go in one of two directions. It can become a perceptive and pointed satire about American attitudes, showing how the denizens of Beverly Hills react to this black cop from Detroit or it can go for broad cheap laughs and plug into a standard plot bar from countless TV crime shows. Beverly Hills Cop doesn't pause a moment before taking the low road. We figured that out right away when Murphy tries to register in a hotel and is told there isn't any room. He loudly pulls both ranks and race claiming to be a correspondent from Rolling Stone and accusing the desk clerk of racism. This is A, not funny, and B, not convincing, because Beverly Hills desk clerks were not born yesterday. If the people who made this movie had been willing to listen to the ways that real people talk, they could have made the scene into a jewel instead of an embarrassment. Murphy is one of the smartest and quickest young comics actors in the movies, but he's not an action hero despite his success in 48 Hours. And by plugging him into an action movie, the producers of Beverly Hills Cop reveal a lack of confidence in their original story inspiration. It's like they had a story conference that boiled down to, hey gang, here's a great idea, let's turn it into a standard idea and fill it with cliches, take out the satire, and put in machine guns. Alright, I mean, fine. Like, with lesser actors, maybe I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the scene at the concierge desk like falls a little flat like I, it's definitely not like some kind of powerful scene or whatever but it's eddie murphy i mean it's eddie murphy like doing a bit inside of doing movie. another one of his voices from stand-up basically right. yeah and like if <laughs> if i don't respond to that criticism because i understand it yeah but i think that it's misguided because i think it misses the point in a lot of ways. Like, I, I think it's... I think that's... And I don't think Ebert does this much, so it's an odd criticism of mine towards Ebert, but I think it's, like, grandstanding just for grandstanding's benefit. Like, it's, like, purposefully missing the point of the movie so you can make another point. Because maybe... He wants it to be a different movie. Right, but it's not. I mean, it's He's just not is, reviewing in that... In a lot of these, not reviewing the movie that's there. He's reviewing the movie that's not there. Yeah, that's weird because I don't feel like Ebert does that much. He doesn't. But... I don't know, like I like I understand, I guess, that criticism, but I think it misses the point of what Beverly Hills Cop is. And let me tell you that every, two and a half stars. every single time I've said Beverly Hills Cop, I've wanted to say Beverly Hills Ninja, 
which is a completely different movie. It's a completely different movie. Right, yeah. that I honestly have never seen, so I don't know why that keeps popping into my head, but that'll never be on the list, I don't think. Probably not. Maybe best Although, I have movies. a story about Farley Hills Ninja. Okay. When my dad was in rehab, Chris Farley was in rehab with him at the same time, and he had just got his finished filming Beverly Hills Ninja. Like they were in rehab at the same place? Yes. Together? Yeah. So your dad met Chris Farley? Yeah. Was in rehab with Chris Farley. That is a weird story. Why was Chris Farley in rehab in Delaware? Uh, Maryland? Maryland. It was um, Father Martin Ashley's, which is like a really fancy rehab in Harford County. And uh, his job, he worked for Conica. Conica, yeah, right. I and that. Conica had really good policies about health and wellness and stuff like that. And that's where they sent him for 30 days. That was um, very, very kind of them. It very, very much. We so. actually did the same thing at the very, steel mill for a couple of people that had some some addiction issues. That's my only Beverly Hills Ninja story is that my father was in a rehab right after Farley filmed that. Also Beverly him. Hills Chihuahua. Yeah, but I don't think yeah. that that as much as Beverly Hills Ninja. Yeah, I don't think. So. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Yeah. So, I I think it's a great movie. I think it's one of the best action comedies of the '80s and maybe ever. Um, and definitely sets a lot of precedent for a lot of movies that came after it, which I think makes it pretty, um, maybe groundbreaking isn't the right term, but definitely important in its own way and, you know, still fun to watch. I'd have to do a lot of thinking, but it's like, this is up there. If I had to just pick action movies from the 80s, even though this is an action comedy, like it, it get, it's close to being up there with Die Hard and Lethal Weapon for me. It's not quite to that level, I think, but it's up there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I actually kind of like it more than Lethal Weapon, and I know you have a lot of like affection for Lethal Weapon, but there's something about Eddie Murphy and um, Taggart and Rosewood that I just like a little more, I mm. think. I, I, I think I like Lethal Weapon a lot, but uh, there's something about okay. Beverly Hills Cop. I was going to say, because we weren't doing this podcast anymore, if, 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 if something, <laughs> something didn't come out of your mouth that <laughs> saved you from... Trying to ban Math Lethal Weapon. <clears throat> I mean, it's Lethal Weapon's one of the better trilogies ever, I think. Hmm. That's interesting. I'd have to think about that. I mean, I'd say it's top five. That might be a list at some point, but yeah. it's hard to think I of. I don't have as much fondness for the second or third one as I do the first one. I like the second one a lot. I don't like the third yeah. one as much, but I still think the third one's yeah. good. Honestly, I even think the fourth one is okay. It's just a little too much. Like, it tries to do too many things. Yeah, and I don't like Chris Rock, and I don't like the addition of that character. Honestly. Well, And that's that's part of the problem, is it tries to, like, yeah, throw these yeah. different elements into it. Yeah, oh, okay. So, now we're going to move on number one. Yep. All right. Number one movie on top five Fish Out of Water comedies in the 1980s you have is Back to the Future, 1980 film directed by Robert Zemeckis, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Crispin Glover, Leah Thompson... It has a 96% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 94% from audiences. So, for those that maybe have never seen it, if you just want to briefly describe the plot of this movie and tell us what you like about it so much. So, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, is this skateboarding, guitar-playing teenager in the 80s who kind of runs afoul of authority figures. Um, His father's a weak-willed, Milk toast that gets bullied by his boss. His mother is an overweight chain smoker. Um, alcoholic. Yeah, alcoholic, you're right. Um, Marty's friends with, for some reason, this eccentric older inventor, Emmett Brown, mm-hmm. um, played by Christopher Lloyd. 
Um, Christopher Lloyd wants Marty to meet him in a parking lot so he can show him his new invention, which happens to be a time-traveling device hooked up to a DeLorean um, with the premise that once it goes uh, is it 86 miles an hour, yes. like you go back in time. Um, uh, eight, 88. 88, you're right. The Libyans, yeah. who yeah. Emmett stole plutonium from, come and murder Emmett, oh. where Marty gets in the DeLorean and you know, tries to get away, hits the 88 and disappears in another, like one of the more iconic scenes in eighties movies, you know, the two flaming tire tracks mm-hmm. left in, is it a Sears parking lot? I think, right. JC Penney's right. Okay. Um, you know, the mall parking lot. So Marty finds himself back in Hill Valley in, uh, the mid fifties, um, where Emmett Brown is a younger man. His parents are both high schoolers. Without the ability to get the plutonium to get back to uh, whatever, 1986 or whenever it is. Um, has a weird like run-in with his mom who becomes infatuated with him. And overtly tries to like have sex with him. Um, finds out that his dad was just as weak-willed and like wilting back in that time. And then goes through a series of adventures where he realizes that what he's doing is changing the future and probably causing himself to never be born by creating a paradox or whatever. Um, but manages to get back to the, back to the future, um, by hooking, you know, convinces Emmett Brown, they build this thing where he's got to hit, you know, when the lightning strikes the clock tower and he hits it at the right time, it'll generate the energy to get him back. Convinces his dad to grow a spine and stick up for his mom um, and ends up changing the future for the better um, and ends with Doc Brown showing up with, you know, a brand new time machine that's going to take him into the future, which leads into the second movie. Um, to me, this was like the only no brainer on the list where I didn't even have to think about it. Um, I mean, really, Beverly Hills Cop and Big sort of meet that criteria, too. But this was like the first movie that I thought of. Um Really just fantastically written, directed, and acted comedy. Um, great Huey Lewis in the News soundtrack, which I don't know that I'll ever say again. Um, I like Huey Lewis in the News, don't get me wrong, but just, you know, back in time. Like, it's really, it's really good. Um, some really, like, great iconic scenes, I think. Like, so many of them. You know, there's the... Like him playing the guitar at the um, high school dance. Um, I like small things like him, like skateboarding through the town and like hooking onto the back of the cars to like get himself around. The thing with like the Calvin Kleins or whatever in his yeah. his mom's bedroom. Well, she's seen his underwear, right? right? And says that his name like thinks his name Calvin. is Calvin, right? Right, because yeah. his name's in his underwear. Sure. Um, Great performance by Christopher Lloyd as yeah. Emmett Brown. And that's a really iconic scene of, like, the clock tower with, like, the him trying to get it hooked up. Right. Get, you know, on top of the so clock at, tower. So at the very moment the they can right. hit the hit the electrical yeah. line. Right. Um, what's his name? Uh, shit. Uh, Crispin Glover as his <laughs> dad, like, knocking out Biff Tannen, who's yeah. the bully. Yeah. Um, Christopher, Crispin Glover, one of, like, legitimately the weirdest weirdest fucking dudes in all of Hollywood history I think 
um, just great, like awkward, antsy. And, yeah, it's like yeah, energy. Like, yeah, like yeah. almost, almost like autistic before autistic was generally a thing because of his like social awkwardness and his inability to talk and yeah, and and he, and he goes into himself a lot, and he also. Yeah, but it's like, but there's a mania to it as well. Right, yeah. Like there's definitely what, that manic energy all the right, time. Right, yeah. But I mean, I think that's just Crispin Glover. It is. Well, yeah. Did, did we talk about the production of this at all? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, this has like one of the more complicated production histories of any movie that is this well regarded and received over the years. Like, this movie was written in like 1981 or something like that. And went into production hell for years really? because Zemeckis bombed with used cars. The Robin Williams, oh, you know, we, Russell movie. Yeah, we did talk about this. And then also studios didn't want it because of what the the, the, the kind of the incest, the story. implied incest. Yeah, the, sure. yeah with, with well, the, not even implied. The right, the attempted mother trying incest. to right. So um, unknowing incest. So right, right, yeah, and so. You had like all of these things, and then there's the whole Eric Stoltz get gets cast because Michael J. Fox is filming Family Ties, and they won't let him. Fox won't let him go for Family Ties to film it. They film a month with Eric Stoltz, who everybody says did a really great dramatic performance, but didn't have that same kind of comedic yeah. feeling that Michael J. Fox did. So Stoltz, they part amicably. Because Stoltz realizes he's not right for the role either. And it's like Christopher Lloyd wasn't originally cast in the role. It was somebody else. I can't remember who it was off the top of my head now. And Huey Lewis like wasn't tied in for the soundtrack right away. It's like all these elements that were just like not there and just slowly came together. Yeah, that's pretty it, crazy it, that it, none of that stuff was there in the beginning. Right. But because... Chris, and Crispin Glover got a lot of things. <laughs> Crispin Glover, the reason I was saying this, that was apparently a problem on the set. That's why he's not in the second and third one playing the father, it's a different actor, is because Crispin Glover interpreted the role in his own unique way, so they would fight with him on set because he'd want to do what he wanted to do and not do what they told him to do, so he would ad-lib or like do these weird mannerisms all the time, and some of that worked its way in and some of it didn't, but I still think it works really well despite the it fact does. that it's this weird hodgepodge of what they wanted and what he wanted and I think it works really right. well when the product. When you're introduced to Lorraine in 1955 you have no idea how it's going to work out where Crispin, Crispin Glover is going to get right. like basically this like teenage sex pot right. who's really attractive right. and yeah. and how like they ended up in that situation where he's working for Biff and I don't know it's just um I, I love Michael J. Fox. I think that yeah. he's another guy where he's not somebody that you necessarily think about all the time as being like a great comedic actor, but he really does have like really good timing and he's got this, it's something that I think that there's other teen actors like from the same era that they tried to ape his mannerisms and his like quick wit and his sort of like like laissez-faire attitude towards like a lot of things in life and you look at people like um shit i don't know uh like the guys from the goonies um sean astin and um cory feldman yeah i think you also see the sitcoms during that time period even more readily right but i mean you... also because michael j fox like set the standard of the of the in old, the early 80s son right of the for sitcom. the 
Which yeah. also another great Michael J. Really, like, one of the better sitcom actors, too, of, like, forever. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame about his disease because yeah. he kind of was cut short. Cause Especially in Family Ties towards the later latter seasons of that. He he gets to have some really dramatic stuff. Yeah, like, the, some of those. when he takes speed to yeah, try and, yeah. like, study better. Mm-hmm. Um, mirrored, like, really poorly in Saved by the Bell. Right. Like, yeah, a decade yeah. later. Um so, quick side note, we watch this comedy channel at work at lunch. Like, it's what's on our TV at work, and nobody ever changes the channel for some reason. Yeah. Um, so, I get to watch Spin City every day when I'm eating my lunch. And I really like the Michael J. Fox Spin City and do not like the Charlie Sheen Spin City. And it's funny because I never watched that sitcom when I was, like, when it was on. But it's just really, it's it's nice to see, like, how good his comedic timing is and how well, like... There's small things he does with, like, his hands and his shoulders and the way he turns his head that you can tell all the time that it's Michael J. Fox. But he's really good at, like, I don't know, like, investing just something in these char- in the characters that he plays. Yeah. And as Marty McFly throughout the three movies, I think he does a really good job. Yeah. And I know that, like, there's some... You don't like the second one? Is that right? I don't... I don't like it. I like the second one better than I like the third one, I think. There's somebody that we're but friends I, with. But that, I don't I don't like it as much as the first one. No, I mean, that's I think true. they go... I think they get worse in progressive order. I don't think any of them are bad. Right. But it's like, I, I, I think they certainly get worse as they go on. Yeah, they do. I I really like... I mean, I, I like all three of them. And as a trilogy, it's really, it's good. I really like the second movie, like, a lot. Um... I don't like the future stuff in the second movie. Maybe See, that's what I, it is. I, I really like the future stuff in the second yeah. movie. I don't know why, but there's just yeah. something about... I don't know. I, I, it, I like, thought it was hokey. And we're living in that future now, right? Yes. Like we're in... Oh, pretty much. I think I can't remember. I think it goes to... I can't remember what year it is. I, I don't remember either. I think it's the 2020s, maybe. Yeah. But but we're almost there. Well, maybe, we're, we're actually, maybe we're there. We're actually pretty close in terms of technology. Yeah, sure. Like It's pretty prescient. It's like Robert... Yeah. Zemeckis was Jules Verne, or not Jules Verne, is that right? Yeah, Jules Verne, like, predicting the future. Um, anyway, it's it's a really entertaining, like, sort of coming-of-age movie. Um, I think there's some really great interactions between all the characters. Um, it's It kind of epitomizes what was fun about movies in the 80s in a similar way to how like Goonies does, where it really is just like a good adventure movie that focuses on a kid, you know, like doing these things that probably shouldn't be able to do, but keeps you entertained. And, you know, he makes like stupid decisions that a kid would make. And he's definitely like not as ambitious as he should be and doesn't like, isn't living up to his potential in, in, you know, the modern times, but is able to like affect the future and change things for the better. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I really love Back to the Future. I know that among our group of friends, it's one of, like, the common, like, loved movies that we all have. I think among the generation itself. Yeah, that's, like, that's X, true. It's a, it's a very common, like, well-loved thing. I mean, I felt, watching it, seeing J.C. Penney's, I mean, it looks almost exactly like the same facade right. outside. It looks exactly like the J.C. Penney's at Christiana Mall that I grew up with. Right. It's really kind of depressing, it, like, when you think about it. There's, um, like, a bittersweetness. To, that's what that's nostalgia, though, to me, is, like, the idea that it's, like, it's, 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 it's something you remember. It's shared experience. But at the same time, there's a sadness that goes along with it. When I was, um, when I was traveling for work, I can't remember when this was, maybe a year or two ago. 
I remember going past the mall and there was a Sears. Mm -hmm. And, like, the rest of the mall had all kinds of cars outside it and the Sears had nothing. And I remember thinking, like, it's actually a really funny... What is that in? I was watching Prom Night the other night, Mm -hmm. the horror movie. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in Prom Night where the, like, the quote-unquote, like, bitch character that's trying to become prom queen is talking about her dress and how she went to Sears and the salesperson like gave her this dress that was worn by Liz Taylor and how classy it was and I remember thinking like man like Sears like Sears used to be the place where you went when you wanted to you know like a little better than JCPenney's like you wanted like the more or it wasn't quite Macy's but it was Sears and you know Sears Roebuck and the Sears Roebuck catalog yeah the catalog just so many things that right I mean even the old Texaco sign in Back to the Future right when they pass it like it's like there's I have nostalgia for the old look of the Texaco sign right you know I mean it's weird it's funny because you mentioned something earlier that really made me nostalgic which was renting a VCR Mm. where when I was in my when we had first moved up here so it was probably like 84 roughly um, we would rent a VCR every weekend from Universal Video because my parents hadn't been convinced yet that they should buy a VCR. And the reason that we got a VCR was because my dad wanted a camcorder so bad and bought the camcorder that had the the side pack that you would wear that had a VCR mm-hmm. in it. And that's how you had to film was with like an entire VCR sure. like hanging from your shoulder. But I just like, I don't know. It's. Yeah, yeah. My parents didn't have the money to buy a VCR for a long time. So, I, I apologize. But um, but but until they came down in price, and I think that was like 1986 roughly is when yeah, they that's came down in price right. enough. So I remember in 84 to 85 when I start having memories. Like I, yeah. I remember going with them to Movie King in where we live here in Elkton. And it's like uh, there were steps leading up. It was the old Movie King. So oh, there were right. steps the leading on, up to. The one off of Main Street. Yeah, there's two of them that moved. It was down by the pool hall at one point. Right. And it moved down the street. Yeah, but yeah. the one down the pool hall, you had to walk up those steps. And I remember... Uh, the walk one... up past the duck hunt machine. Yeah. And yeah. go up the steps. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember... Yeah, the, the, the one... Machine. I remember running Cat's Eye. Hmm. Um, when we had to run a VCR. I remember we were still running a v- Starman. I remember... Yeah. I remember a specific memory of running Starman, the Bridges movie. And then... Um, Ghostbusters. You know what my favorite part about that that movie King was? Was um, you walked up and you came into like the video store proper and it seemed like so expansive. Like it felt like the biggest place in the world. Yeah. And they had all the movie posters on the walls like around the... And it was higher up so like you had to like look up to see them. And the two ones I remember are Funny People mm. and Defcon 6. And Funny People like I never understood... It never appealed to me, but I always, like, looked at it because we rented movies there, like, a number of times, even though we lived in Northeast. And Defcon 6 poster used to scare the shit out of me as a little kid because it's the skeleton and, like, the um, deep-sea diver-like thing, like, in the wasteland or whatever. Oh, my God. I, and then I watched that movie, and, I mean, I Defcon 6 is fine, but it's nothing great. But I expected so much more because I used to always look at that poster and be like, oh, that movie's got to be the scariest movie. And for any any people that don't remember that time period, it's like you'd go in the video store and 
it wasn't like the latter years of video stores where you would go into a blockbuster and the newest movie they had like 50 copies of or something or 100 copies of right. on the wall. It's like they had like six copies. Maybe for, six for if you were lucky. Movie. For a hit movie, you'd have like five right. or six. And you had to grab the little, to, there was a little token you, There's a little the hook. hook underneath every movie box. And there's a little t- little round token that they would write a number on. That was the filing system. So you'd have to grab that hook, like that, that token off the hook and take it up with you and handle your tokens so they could find the movies in their catalog. The worst part about the token system was when some asshole would rent a Nintendo game and put a different Nintendo game in it. And you would finally get, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 that you could yeah. rent. You would take the token up and you would uh-huh. come back and it was like fucking skate or die. Yeah. Oh, so depressing. But I think the, I, one of the questions I was going to ask you about this movie that is a little off the beaten track for us, it's not common, is I was going to ask you why you think this movie has held its... Why, why it's so iconic and why you think it's held its relevance. And I'm wondering if part of the answer isn't this discussion that we've been having here that seems off topic. Yeah. Is that it, one, for our generation, I think it takes us back to that time in a lot of ways and makes us reminisce and there is that nostalgia. But, I mean, there's a lot of people that are younger, that are younger than us, that still love this movie. Yeah. And I, what, what do you think the explanation is for why it's continued to be I, beloved? It's one of those things where I think it's kind of a perfect storm. I mean, Zemeckis is a great adventure movie director. Like, he's really good at directing adventure. And it's Michael J. Fox at, like, the peak of his, like, teen idol. You know, he's he's handsome and he's witty and he's funny and he's cool in the sense that he's got, you know, the... What is it? Like, they think he's a sailor because he's wearing the, the orange vest. That's funny, yeah. Um, and he's yeah. a skateboarder and he plays guitar. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like... Lloyd is so great in it, and Crispin Glover's so weird, and Biff Tannen's such a perfect villain, both in, like, the fact that they show you these people in the modern day and then in their past, and you can see, like, the parallels and sometimes, like, the complete, like, disparity between the characters they are. And it's just, it's really well-paced. It's got really good comedic moments. You know, the dump truck of shit, like, falling on the convertible. Mm -hmm. Um... Is like a really great moment. I don't know why I just thought of that one specifically. And I think it perfectly captures both the similarities and the differences between what a lot of baby boomers would tell you or is like the golden years of America, which is the 50s. And it kind of shows you that they weren't quite as golden as you remember. Like they were still like, you know, bullying and racism and people were like not necessarily nice to each other and people were still trying to have like premarital sex like it wasn't some like chase like wonderland but that the modern age isn't as bad either because like kids are still kids and people are still like doing the same things and i don't know i mean it's just it's more than anything it's just a really good movie and i think that movies you can say the same thing about goonies i think because i think the goonies has like lived continues to live a life through like people that are my age and our children by showing them you know i mean our friend mike who was on one of the podcasts, The First Watch, you know, his daughter likes the Goonies. And this is a, what is she, seven? Now seven-year-old girl that, like, enjoys this movie that we enjoyed when we were around the same age. And I think that movies that are well done can stand the test of time and not, like, fade away or be considered irrelevant. I don't know. And I think the fact that we have the ability to watch anything at any time, like, I think that stuff that really is worth watching will continue to live 
just because people can like access it whenever and watch whatever they want. The other thing I want to say from another nostalgic perspective that maybe some like people that didn't grow up in the era of like the VHS would understand is that a new VHS you remember used to be like eighty to a hundred dollars. Yeah, usually usually a hundred. Like if you if you lost or destroyed, like that was the worst. Like you were talking about like a car payment to buy a videotape. Yes. And now when you can go to Walmart and there's like a bin of DVDs that are like two for five dollars, like it's crazy to think that at one point, yeah. you know, I remember seeing like, I can't remember where it was, it might have been Joe's video, used to like, you could buy any of their videos from them and they used to have price tags on them. Mm-hmm. And I remember Romancing the Stone was like eighty nine ninety five in like 1992 yeah. and Make Them Die Slowly was like $70 and I came real close because I was so obsessed with like the cannibal horror in like the mid 90s that I almost bought friggin make them die slowly for like $69.95 and I remember when Batman Burden's Batman came out in 89 that they actually were selling it before, because usually, what was it? I think it was a three-month period, roughly, before you were allowed oh, to yeah, sell it. Oh, yeah, you couldn't sell it. Like Well, you could sell it, but you could sell it at retail. Right. It was like a three-month period after it got released on video that you had to wait before you could start. they started selling it at, like, 1999. Or right, whatever. at, like, Ames or whatever. Right, yeah. And um, they were selling Batman in the video <clears throat> store for $99 yeah. for those three months before... And it's like, yeah, it was like the, that experience. Well, that was the agreement with the rental companies had with the studios, right? That right. they wouldn't yes. release it domestically I so that you so. wouldn't like hurt yeah. the business. Right. Yeah. Which is crazy now that like, right. like I watch movies sometimes for like $14 as they're out sure. in theaters from the comfort of my home. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild how things have changed, yeah. Um, if somebody said that this movie was overproduced and too big... What would you react to that? That's a weird criticism. Overproduced, I don't agree with that. Okay. I think that I think that for as grand of an idea of like time travel is, mm-hmm. and time travel is an incredibly tricky thing to get right in film and not make it just like way too overly complex or just too stupid to like have any like credibility. Um so for having like this big idea, I think it works really well as kind of a small film because it really is just about like a family dynamic and this one kid trying to like keep his family together through, you know, ridiculous means. Um, too big? I don't know. Again, like I don't really feel like Back to the Future is like a big movie. Like I don't see it. This is coming from Sheila Benson from the Los Angeles Times. She has a lot of criticisms of the movie, but I'm trying to shorthand some of them. Yeah. Overproduced, I don't see it. She also says that she thinks that, like, the the twist ending where the timeline has changed and his family's now successful successful and rich. Right. She thinks that it's hollow and materialistic, the ending. You know, okay. I mean, if you want to be, like... I, I don't understand sometimes how... I could never be a film critic, I don't think, because I just watch movies in the context that the movie presents, right? Like, the reason that... Is it materialistic? Sure. But it's like... It's just the opposite of what it was. It's like they were poor and downtrodden. Right. Had all these issues. And now they're they're successful because things were different, 
you know, he right. helped things be different. And, I mean, it's the 1980s. Like, if you're going to talk about materialism, <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, that's every movie in the 80s is about. Sure. I mean. I mean, the one of the. Want, you want to, you want, I mean, it's the, it's like Rosenbaum talking about Reaganism. It's like, that's right. the 1980s. Well, one of the most like, major plot points of almost any movie in the 80s is. I'm poor and I want to be rich or how do I become rich or how do I get successful? Sure. How do I find the rich stuff? How do I, I don't know. Like everything is about improving your station in life in the eighties because that's what, that's what all the baby boomers were doing. Right. That's, that's what point. it was we about. We get into the social implications of that and like why it's good or bad, but it's like, that's what was going on. So it manifested itself on the screen. Too. And it really, it's, Art it's, imitates life. it's the simplest way to easily demonstrate a happy ending without extending the movie unnecessarily or making things overly complex. And that's it. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, it's not meant to be high art. It's just meant to be like, hey, I'm glad that his parents aren't failures anymore. And hey, Biff Tannen got what he deserved. Right. And that's it. That's basically like the end of it, right? Yeah, like, you're cheer- you're cheering on a babyface character to, to, to defeat the heel, and that's yeah, what happens. And that's what happens. And it doesn't the these five movies, I don't think any of them, have strong universal truths in them. Right. They're not they're, it's not about that. Right. It's about having a good, enjoyable experience while you're watching a movie. I mean, if you have strong universal truths, can you really be a comedy? No, right. Maybe that's yeah. what I don't like about comedies maybe. so much yeah. because, like, there's not a whole lot of depth to or it. Or the comedies you do like, maybe they do have those. Like, you know, or sometimes. Maybe. Like, maybe I just read into them because maybe. I'm a pretentious fuck. But <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I love Back to the Future, and I've never sat there and thought, like, oh, what crass materialism that they now, like, drive a nice car and live sure. in a nice house, and yeah. he's Biff's boss. Right. Okay. What's and that woman's name? Sheila Benson. We've never heard from her before. Yeah, I don't know. Where's San Francisco? Los Angeles. Times. Hmm. I don't know. Kenneth, Kenneth Turin is a lot of times the critic out of L.A. Times that we usually, if we touch on that paper, it's usually him. But I've never seen Sheila Benson before. So, she's new. Okay. Um, okay. Any last thoughts on anything with this list whatsoever? It was more enjoyable to watch these movies than I thought it would be. Okay. That's my that's my thought. And I'm actually glad that we did this list. So you came down from your ivory tower to... to, to... I just might have peeked over the railing okay. a little right. bit. I don't okay. know. I know the fucking ivory tower. <laughs> if you're watching like the B-movies of the 80s, you're going to call me in an ivory I'm in the basement of the ivory tower. Frank texted me while he was watching. I can't remember which one. Maybe it was Uncle Buck. It was Uncle Buck. That... You making me do this list is my punishment for making you watch these B horror movies. I stand by that statement. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, no, I enjoyed watching these movies. It was fun. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I mean, there's a lot of nostalgia for me in a lot of these movies, and I enjoyed most of them to one degree or another. Um, I, I enjoyed all of them. Yeah, I did not enjoy One Crazy Summer, because, right. that, but that was taken off the list after that experience. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, so... Remember, everybody, if uh, you uh, want to offer us up any list suggestions, please email us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. That's number two and five, twoguys5movies at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, uh, where we post podcasts each week, and I um, try to, if I see any interesting news, kind of send it out. Uh, Remember, you can also find us on uh, 
the Podbean, which is our hosting company. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google Play. You can find us on Stitcher or search any of the podcast apps you use. Um, it should uh, it should show up. And uh, thank you to all the people that have like been downloading yes. the podcast. Yeah, because... we've we've had a we've had a, a surge um, in numbers in the past month or so, and we really appreciate that. And we would love to hear more feedback, whether you leave that through uh, your podcast app or whether you email us. Uh, you know, we're welcome uh, any of that kind of feedback that you have for us. We've tried to improve some with the production quality a little bit in terms of things we've been learning along the way and uh i've although i'm not doing that right this second uh, you know trying to get rid of some of my audible pauses out of that speech. <laughs> so the more i think about the more they show up <sighs> so next week we will be having our friend jason heaster return for the third man series as we will be talking about the best bill murray movies and then, like I said, the week after that, we will be doing the top five crime movies of the 1970s. We'll be taking a break for a week, and then we will be back with the top B horror movies in 1982, which should be enjoyable. So It's a good list. Okay, so thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And have a great weekend. Yep, have a good night.